feature presentation. Welcome back to the review event of the year, Barbenheimer. I am one of your hosts, Ken, alongside. He's allergic to tomatoes, but he's tomato meter approved, Ken. <laughs> I thought you were going to call me the destroyer of worlds. Oh, no, like, that too. That too. That too. <laughs> I've been called that more than once in my life. So. Oh my God. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm just, you know, casual Ken, Ken today. Uh, Ken, pardon me. Uh, you know, hanging out, having a good time. Uh, we're not at the beach, unfortunately. We'll 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 do that later. You know, we we're 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 under a roof right now, which is odd for for a couple of Kens just reviewing movies and hanging out and listening to some Matchbox Twenty. So there's going to be a lot to discuss on this episode, and it's going to be a fun one. I think that it's one of those episodes that both of us are coming into it very excited to talk about not only the movies but the cultural signifier and phenomenon that is Barbenheimer. I thought we were all going to be sick of Barbenheimer by the time these two movies came out. And you might be going, how the hell are you guys going to review this as one thing? Well, we're technically not. We're going to start off with this little kind of back and forth about Barbenheimer, the, you know, how crazy it's been leading up to it. The actual experience of seeing both movies back to back. I saw them in the same day. Eric saw them two days, like one after another, um, like or in the same couple days span. Um, and I just think talking about, you know, it's become a meme, but I think this weekend and, and this release has been very special, weirdly. Like, I haven't felt this way about like going to the movies and seeing other people feel this way and get dressed up and talk about it and and both movies being, I think, quite good um, in, in a long time. So it felt like this big event. So we're going to review each movie individually. Um, we're going to talk about the experience as a whole. So if you're only interested in Oppenheimer and our thoughts on that or Barbie and our thoughts on that, there'll be time codes that you guys can check out below. You can just click on it if, on YouTube. It'll jump right over to Oppenheimer, right over to Barbie if you want just those reviews. Uh, but I think this will be a fun episode to kind of talk about, uh, you know, Barbenheimer, everything leading up to it and the night of the week of this weekend so far. So we're recording this after both movies have released um, because I decided to wait and see both movies movies on the same night and do the true Barbenheimer double feature. I saw Oppenheimer in IMAX 70 millimeter. Eric saw it in digital. He was supposed to see it in 70 millimeter. I was, I was robbed. Um, <laughs> um, so we have a different experience as a whole. So I think this will kind of be fun to talk about both movies. I'm Oppenheimer up top, Barbie at the bottom. Um, it feels like I'm a big can. event, man. It's, it's been, um, it's been fun. I think me and you, we were talking about this a little bit, um, off air leading up to this where we were kind of like the meme of it all became kind of exhausting <laughs> to the point where you're like and Christopher Nolan to an extent like after Tenet and you know the whole savior of cinema kind of thing during the pandemic um, and kind of being that broy kind of cinema kind of thing I, I you know I was never thought I was like growing out of Nolan but I was kind of being like all right bro like let's let's chill out a little bit and tenant being as convoluted and all over the place as it was uh was super disappointing so i was a little down on nolan so this whole thing kind of felt like all right let's just kind of maybe get this over with but then i got into the hype i was going with my wife i'm like let's wear pink shirts i, I like it pink and blue shirts and like let's go and do this true double feature let's let's buy into the meme of it all um 
and then man i tell you we did that double feature and um i don't know if barbie ending with barbie and it's kind of very positive candy coated like fun energy just like woke something up inside me that like the cynicism inside me just kind of went away and um made me kind of look at this whole experience as something um kind of special like i know that's kind of weird to say but like um I mean, two guys who love going to the movies, who want movie theaters to succeed, who want them to stick around forever. And we've been in this weird time where they've been up and down. You know, we're in a uh, an actor strike and a, and, a, and a writer strike right now, which we fully 100% support. Like we're covering these movies still because I think they are works of art that are worth criticizing and talking about and celebrating. But we are fully in support of the actors and writers getting their their due. And, and you know, Barbie, I think, kind of even has a little bit of that in there, taking down corporations and capitalism and all this kind of stuff. Weirdly, it's a Barbie movie, but we'll get into that. Um, so, yeah, it's just been a wild week, man. Like, I, I'm kind of rambling right now, but um, it, it's, it's felt special and like going to the theaters and seeing people dressed up and seeing people in pink at Oppenheimer and groups of girlfriends going to Oppenheimer and then going to see Barbie after you see couples going. And like, even if you did them two nights after each other, like it, it's really kind of boosted both films, I think a little bit. So it's been kind of, um, uh, a fun week and a fun weekend so far. Yeah. Now you mentioned, you know, kind of feeling burnt out about it. And I think up until the release, the closer we got, maybe the enthusiasm wasn't there as much because we had both known about this release date for so long. I think when you're in the inverse of film Twitter and and film culture in general, you're kind of more exposed to this stuff in the way that anybody is within any industry. So having known this release date was coming for a little bit longer, I think and also with the marketing, you know, the marketing was the one thing that wasn't really, really hooking. I know with myself, you know, I wasn't really interested in either one, even though I was going to see them based on the filmmakers. But, you know, watching the trailers, they didn't do much for me. And so thinking about that is like, OK, well, the week I'm of, kind of with you there. Too. Yeah, the week of it's going to be you know, even more obnoxious because it's just going to be in full force. And and the studios are, 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 are taking these movies and trying to sell them to as broad an audience as possible because, you know, they, they want to make their money back. You know, they're a corporation. These are expensive films. They're over well over a hundred million dollars each, probably closer to 200 million. Um, and, and so you understand that aspect of it, but yeah, the, the, the marketing itself, I don't think was really, an interest where you have to let the movie speak for itself. And that I felt very similarly with, um, with Nolan's Dunkirk where watching the, the, yeah. the marketing materials and the trailers and things like that leading up to the film, it wasn't doing much for me. But then when you watch the movie and you experience it in either 70 millimeter or on IMAX, you know, it, 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 it says all it needs to say. Um, but I wanted to ask you, when do you think the, cultural crossover happened to the mainstream because it does feel like there was a point where everybody became a little bit more self-aware of 
the Barbenheimer thing because yeah. he, even to the point like this week, you know, like Laird Butter released this really beautiful poster that's which that, shout out to them. We're using it as our art on um, on this episode, so it's great. Go check yeah. out Laird Butter. Go check out um, everything they do. They put out amazing posters all the time. But yeah, that's a great question. Like I, I and because usually we're in this film bubble, right? You yeah. mentioned film Twitter, film threads, whatever the hell, wherever you are. But we're in this bubble where we're aware of these kind of things, right? And I, maybe. We we don't give people enough credit where this can cross over and we think it's a very niche thing, but really, I mean, Barbie, one of the, it's up there with, you mentioned off air too. super Mario came out this year and like it's in there with that, that IP that everyone would recognize, right? Like no matter who you go to, you go, do you know what Barbie is? And, and pretty much if you're in, you know, North America, at least, um, you would know. And I know much of Europe knows what Barbie is, but you know what I mean? Like most people in the world is going to know what a Barbie is. Um, and I think with Oppenheimer, I just, I, 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 Chris Nolan's one of those filmmakers too, that I think, you know, most people who like movies at least would know, him by name and no, because of dark Knight and, and, and at least that Batman trilogy. Cause that was a very huge special moment too. When those movies were coming in inception, out. I um, would say yeah, like the, the end of inception. He's been talking yeah. a lot about recently where like someone mentioned, it's his other moment too. It's his like briefcase in Pulp Fiction, right? Where everybody talks yeah. about that one scene and keeps asking and he won't give them a, a true answer to it. Cause that's kind of part of it. Right? So, yeah, I think probably, you know, it, it starts on things like Twitter and TikTok, probably like I, I feel like it starts on Twitter and you get the film people kind of joking about it being like one of these studios have to move one of these, right? They can't compete against each other. But then you start going well in the very binary, you know, uh, male skewing versus female skewing content uh, in a Warner Brothers, the David Zaslav of it all. Yeah, so you know, I, I I could see both studios being like, well, it's counter programming. You know, like the 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 guys want to go see Oppenheimer and the ladies want to go see Barbie, which is like the the Dark the Knight dumbest, and Mama yeah. Mia of two thousand and eight yeah, rises exactly. again. Counter programming in, in that binary way has been there forever like you know a female skewing movie and a male skewing movie they're not going to move because they don't think that they're really competing against each other you think that like well the audiences are different where this became such a thing because i think one being this very dark and depressing serious intense biopic about one of the most um you know important but um controversial <laughs> controversial figures figures but things being made ever um versus this bright and fun and uh, candy coated um like a thing about a toy about a doll um it, they would felt so different right even though they were both massive movies that coming out on the same day felt like that that perfect opposites kind of attract thing a little bit so oppenheimers like that, if you will yeah oppenheimers attract so uh, i feel like that started to spread a little bit you probably got people making memes on tiktok and twitter and then it just became this thing where everyone's like i can't believe these two movies are coming out on the same day they're so different that's funny like a little bit and like um and I think that just, you know, it became when people latch onto something and you see that it people start talking about it, it's it snowballs and then people go, oh, that could be really fun. We haven't people who don't go to the movies very often could be like, well, I want to see Barbie. Oh, that'll be fun to kind of do that funny double feature that people are, are saying about the, you know, Chris Nolan. I saw 
the Batman movies or saw Inception or something like that. Um, they're so different. Let's do it. And I think it just kind of took over a little bit. And um, I do think it benefited both movies. If you're looking at the the box office for both movies right now, like we're only we're recording this on Saturday, so there's still a lot to go. Um, but I think both movies are go overperforming. Like um, Barbie was supposed to not supposed to but tracking for 140 150 million oppenheimer was only tracking for 40 million and like it looks like oppenheimer might double that and almost do like 80 million and then barbie might do like 155 to 175 in in there it's hard to say because we're still early in the weekend but um I really do think sticking with these dates helped both movies. Like I really do think that there are a lot of people doing this double feature that might not have seen one or the other movie. You know what I mean? Like I think a lot of people going to see Barbie might not have watched Oppenheimer in the theaters, but are seeing Oppenheimer in the theaters because of that fun double feature. And I think there are lesser so, but people going to see Oppenheimer that are then going to see Barbie uh, for the same reasons. So I really do think that it, it really helped Oppenheimer, I think, because I, I think if you look at Dunkirk and 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 some of Nolan's more less, um, I guess like less flashy blockbuster action movie kind of movies, like they track a little bit lower, right? Like even though he's one of the most popular, most famous, like biggest filmmakers in the world, um, I still think a movie like this, a three hour like slow um movie even though it's not it's paced uh, kind of insanely well a like, prestigious biopic um, being released yeah. in the summer movie season instead of the fall or winter you know when this is the time of year that is usually reserved for blockbusters even in that way you, you know you're talking about counter counter programming Oppenheimer is also still counter programming in that sense that it's it's yeah. it's a drama uh, it's historical it's it's a historical drama but it's not necessarily just historical it's it's still kind of playing within the milieu of being a thriller you know and unfolding as such and, and still I, on a blockbuster scale right with yeah. the IMAX cinematography and all those kind of things so anyways um yeah i, I think it's really helped each movie and it's been you know, I saw tons of people dressed up mostly in pink. Like it, it seemed like, you know, and Barbie over like performing almost double of what Oppenheimer did. Like it is the more, you know, um, ex, uh, um, I'm trying not to use the word accessible anymore. Um, uh, because you know, that should attribute to something else, but, um, like easily, uh, you know, people, it's what more well known, like more people, you know, of all ages will go see Barbie. So, of course, it's doing double. So, I think like that's leading the charge of people like dressing up and thinking it's a fun night out. And then, um, less people are in, you know, suits or, or, you know, or, <laughs> or all black or whatever for often or eating oranges. So, yeah. So, um, it's just, it was fun, man. Like, there was an energy. A not energy. A energy. A energy to Thursday night when I went. Um, that I haven't felt since probably Avengers Endgame. And I know that wasn't that long ago, but um, I remember us frequently getting this when movies were a little bit more spread out. And I'm thinking in that Dark Knight era, um, which is quite a while ago now, um, like it, it felt like there was an event film every few months, right? And now when we've become a little bit oversaturated and uh, of getting and spoiled a little bit of getting like a quote unquote blockbuster or big movie every week almost and two you know 
varying degrees of um enjoyment and and quality and things like that like they haven't like i guess spider verse was close to that like that's something that caught on and it did a lot better than the first movie and things like that but um i uh this is uh, yeah. the last time I felt that. Yeah, that what you're describing. Because I, I, I think for film people, yes. I, but I, I'm trying to. I'm not trying to diminish once a time, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. I was going to say once that. upon atomic um, time. <laughs> I, I do agree with that, Eric. But I think that that's a little bit more of you know that bubble we're talking about. Like right. that's when you felt that. But the, but there I'm was a lot. But Tarantino, I think, is one of those people though as well that he, he sells his name is enough to sell a ticket. People totally, know who he I is, and there's think an it's excitement. On the same level as this weekend. No, this is I this don't... is this is a cult. I'm talking about like this is a cultural phenomenon. But in terms yeah. of like getting like in, I'm I'm looking at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is more so like closer to Oppenheimer where. You have a film that isn't necessarily a summer blockbuster per se, but it's getting a big profile summer release. And this was also Tarantino, you know, selling this to Sony at a time where he was, you know, leaving the the problematic era of working with the Weinsteins and finding it's the same a new kind of place. situation as Nolan leaving Warner Brothers. Yeah, too, right? yeah, and, then, and and it feels and, like that in some ways. Like even watching in seventy millimeter of varsity with you, like and Nolan owes Tarantino a little bit because Tarantino yeah. was that guy who forced everyone to put seventy millimeter projectors back in their um, cinemas, and then you know Nolan's done a lot for IMAX. So I guess that's a good unless you had anything about the uh, the double feature thing. I mean, yeah, I, I just wanted to quickly and, mention like with the double feature of it all. I, I saw uh, Barbie on uh, Monday and then I saw Oppenheimer on Wednesday. But I think thematically what's interesting, even though they're they're very different movies, they're both moral quandaries and, and existential yeah. dilemmas within the narrative that they're telling and the narrative that they're showing you. And, and I think that that's kind of interesting as well. Like, and they're, they're both, I think they're, they're, they're films. Like if you really love them, you can go back and get so much more on a second or third watch because they're so densely kind of, uh, you know, impacted with all this really good and interesting stuff that I think on a first time watch, you're just taking in the experience where I'm really excited to go back and watch Barbie. And even though I'm more mixed positive and with some caveats on Oppenheimer, I do feel I would maybe get more on a second viewing of it because I remember, I agree. I I remember my experience with interstellar, almost feeling very similar to this where the first time I saw interstellar, I liked the film quite a bit, but there was still some things that are holding me back. And we'll talk about it with the, with, with what's kind of bothering me with Oppenheimer, but with interstellar then rewatching it a few years down the line, I found myself loving it even more. And I almost do feel like it is the closest thing to being a, a, a personal and emotional film from Christopher Nolan, who's somebody who's known for being very cold and, you know, clinical and, yeah. and calculated in his mythology and his methods as a filmmaker. Yeah, I totally agree that um, that weirdly the movies work well as a double feature because of some of those things that you that you mentioned, and it almost just worked out perfectly. And and the comparison to Interstellar is interesting because I, I I was talking about this with my wife last night too, and I I felt very I I really like Oppenheimer. I think a little bit more than you, um, but. I still think in the grand scheme of things, I prefer more sci-fi action-y Nolan stuff, although Tenet removed. But like, um, I, 
it did remind me of interstellar in the sense where i was very tepid on interstellar or thought it was you know good not great when i first saw it but that's a movie where each time i watch it i like it more and i um and it kind of slowly rises up for me and then if you're ranking nolan movies and like the experience of that in imax like each time i see it the first uh, uh, not first uh, just interstellar um is i think super like it is an experience and oppenheimer too is as well so i guess we can kind of move into that because like before we kind of review both movies um I can talk a little bit about how it was seeing the film um, in IMAX 70 millimeters. So um, you were supposed to see the film on regular 70 millimeter at Varsity. Unfortunately, yes. the print didn't get there in time. So it was what a DCP. They, what they said, you, said to you guys. Although I also heard reports that their projectionist might have quit at Varsity. So that's why like, it didn't work properly on the first night as well. There's a lot of stuff. So we can kind of talk about all of that here. Um, so, you know, I think you can tell by both of us, we both enjoyed both movies to various extents. We both love Barbie. Um, I thought Oppenheimer was quite good. Eric thought it was, you know, mixed positive on, on Oppenheimer. So there's our, you know, opinions on that full reviews coming up time codes. Like I said, let us know which movie you guys did first in the comments and stuff like that. I would love to know which way you guys think. Is You'd the like to know which them. films you suffer. <laughs> um, so anyways, the 70 mil. So yeah, went to Cineplex Vaughn here in Toronto. So there's only like 30 cinemas worldwide that are playing it on IMAX 70 millimeter or are capable of it. Two of them are in the GTA, none in downtown Toronto because they took the 70 millimeter from Scotiabank. So it's only a laser IMAX, which is still full frame, but it is digital. So it's still a good experience at Scotiabank. Usually I haven't seen Oppenheimer there, but it is digital. So Cineplex Vaughn, Cineplex Mississauga are the two theaters near us that are playing it in IMAX 70 millimeter. Varsity Cinemas is playing it in regular 70 millimeter. Um, and Scotia is playing uh, it in laser, like it's digital. That's what I just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then usually we would have had the Cinesphere, which can play IMAX 70 millimeter as well, but it is closed right now because it's being renovated again. And there's a giant shit show down at Ontario Place where the Cinesphere is, which is the first ever permanent IMAX theater. Very awesome place to see IMAX movies. Anyways, that's a little history of the GTA IMAX theater. So I went to Vaughn. First showing of it, 6 p.m., very first showing in IMAX 70 millimeter. It felt like Tiff a little bit, Eric, because like seeing the double feature of Barbie and Oppenheimer and I ran into our friend Shaq, uh, Mark Weingust of, of Layered Butter. Um, there was uh, Patrick Tomasa was there and went viral because of um, showing a video of when the, the show broke down halfway through. Not broke down, but stopped and then restarted. Um, so there's a lot of people there that like I knew – and you bump into people, you're saying, hi, Shaq's seat was actually right beside ours just by uh, <laughs> like not even on purpose. He's like, where are you sitting? I'm like, oh, I'm J26. He's like, oh, I'm J25. I was like, amazing. <laughs> so sat with Shaq, watched the movie. Um, so and you brought up Tarantino and Nolan's in this camp, too, because they're two of the only guys that are like, oh, they're film still, bro uh, directors, yeah, too. That's one thing um, Two, they're, I think they get a little bit of that because they are those guys that are so hardcore when it comes to shooting on film and not only just shooting on film, but making sure places project on film, which they're two of the only guys that still like will go, I'm not making a movie unless I'm it's at least projected on film in in a handful of spots. So PTA as it, well as in there. Yeah, he does. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're right there. Um, but maybe not to the extent as those two guys, I think like, I think 
you he gets like a frat. It's yeah, you're right. He's you're right. I'll, I'll, I think I'll, all three of those guys are traditionalists, where like yeah. they're 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 the the ones that are keeping um, photochemical. Film film and and and, yeah. and tech alive where if it wasn't for those bigger names um maybe it would be a rarity not to say that there aren't other filmmakers that are are using it because there are but in terms of just you know shooting on film and nolan in particular shooting i think actually on, projecting and getting a yeah shooting on I, I think with nolan in particular like he's been talking very much about using you know the black and white analog uh imax film for this and it being kind Which of a rarity exactly yeah. and so you have yeah. things like that where that is a selling point to not only um people that are interested in the technical side of film but the puritans of cinema the ones that will yeah. go to a movie because they want to see the texture on screen they want to feel like it's that, it's man. projecting and, that way back to them. And there's not many people who do that and we just mentioned the few. So it is it does feel like an experience. Like every time I go into one of those IMAX theaters to see a Nolan movie on 70mm and we were kind of robbed of that of Tenet, right? Because we we did go see Tenet at in Whippy and on digital on a regular 239 you know, cinemascope kind of widescreen, and I've never seen it in IMAX, so maybe that would. I saw the opening in IMAX at Cinesphere when they did that little preview. Um, so maybe that I do think it enhances his movies, it makes them feel like more of an experience. There is no one else, kind of, you know, we did have Jordan Peele shoot on IMAX film, but it was never projected on IMAX film, with which no, was also Hoyt Van Hoytema um, as the cinematographer, yeah. So obviously, I think that was intentional there. Um, and it does it, it, so without getting into the movie, which we will do in a moment, but the whole experience of it, it, it was great. I mean, mind you, it did shut down th- uh, two hours and 20 minutes into the movie. Like it just stopped the first minute or so there was nothing on screen. So the it started and we could hear it. And but we never saw the Warner Bro- or not Universal logo or uh, Sin copy is is. Yeah, uh, is it? Yeah. Sin copy logo or anything like that. It just. It, it finally realized that there was nothing on screen and they turned it on when that quote comes up at the very beginning in the fire. Um, uh, so we missed a bit of the beginning and then missed um, a little bit when it shut down. So that being said, there's still nothing like it. Like you don't get this very often other than a, maybe a PTA or a Tarantino when those movies come out where, and Warner brothers used to weirdly do it with their big movies. They would play them in 70 millimeter at varsity, like ready player I one. Saw, <laughs> I saw ready player one in 70 mil. I saw wonder woman in 70 mil. I saw fantastic beasts in 70 mil, like every big well, inherent uh, vice was a 70 um, millimeter film as well. Yeah, Talking about and, Paul Tom Sanderson. Yeah, and none of those movies were really even shot on that, but like Warner Brothers was weirdly printing these and sending them out to Varsity to do that. So, I don't know, it's like you said, it's there's something about the flickering light and the texture and like I'm not a purist when it comes to movies. Like I'm fine watching stuff on digital. I think film has gotten uglier with digital cinematography, but there are people who can do it super well. Well, that um, I think that's and, I think that's the and, uh, the difference though. I think that that's important yeah. to make that distinction. It's a, it's not that digital doesn't necessarily look bad. It's who's using it and how they use it because I think it's still yeah. I a think people have just gotten a little lazy. Form. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like they it, there are people who know how to utilize it very very well. There are people who know to make how to make it look like film, but there's still something about seeing that like flickering light light and those 
flesh tones and like the texture you're mentioning. And like, I am someone who likes when it's a little, like you see a scratch or a hair on the print or, um, you know, there is this kind of weird fluttering, which you can kind of do a perfect film print and project it perfectly. But sometimes it's those imperfections that kind of add to the experience, especially with a movie like Oppenheimer as well. So like, did Oppenheimer need to be an IMAX? You know, I don't know. Like it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a drama. It's a historical drama and, and biopic. Like it's just, I, there's a lot of people talking in IMAX or it does the classic Nolan thing of like cutting between the two, three, nine footage and the IMAX footage, just like what feels like randomly. <laughs> like it's not. And that's the thing that's always kind of annoyed me about his IMAX movies is like, I'd prefer there to be like a big chunk in IMAX or the whole thing in IMAX rather than like a scene where someone's driving up to a house and then when they're leaving the car and walking up to the house, it's in IMAX, but it's like a four frames and then it cuts back to the two, three, nine footage. And I'm like, why did that shot of the person getting out of the car need to be in IMAX? Like you, I, you want I, more intention, right? Like, like, yeah, like a reason like, why he's doing that. And it almost seems like, well, the scenes where we need, like, uh, they're very dialogue heavy and in close up because the cameras are so loud. We can't necessarily shoot that on IMAX, but anything where we need a wide, we'll shoot it on IMAX. But sometimes I don't think it's necessary. And like, I get that you're just going to crop it for the two, three, nine anyway. So you're like, well, we're, we're framing everything and we're blocking everything for the wide. Right. So whatever, throw the IMAX frame in there because we shot it on that. And, but it, for consistency reasons, that's the shit that always kind of is distracting towards me. And I did find that through Oppenheimer where I'm like, I'd rather big sequences be consistently in IMAX rather than this intercutting of like throwing in a establishing shot in IMAX other than like, you know, he's done establishing shots of a cityscape or, or something like I'm kind of finally leading into a scene, but when you're intercutting them in, in a scene, it always felt, it always feels distracting to me. And I felt that way watching Oppenheimer. That being said, still gorgeous, still like, um, the more surreal moments of the movie, I think work really well. Obviously the, the, the atom bomb test, um, Trinity test, um, yeah. the Trinity test was fully in IMAX and, and was incredible. Um, you know, the black and white cinematography, really interesting to see in, in IMAX. Um, should, I do think if you have this available to you, cause there's only 30 of them in the whole world. So it is very rare to be able to do this. You should go see it in 30 or 30 millimeter, 70 millimeter IMAX, even with the distracting intercutting uh, between the footage and things like that. Like it, it is gorgeous. It is like seeing just people's faces in this gigantic IMAX cinematography and the pacing of the movie. And, and, you know, Nolan is so good at that kind of stuff that like even something that should be very dry just feels like it has this, uh, intense, like, uh, uh, incredible pacing to it all that like, he's just in every movie, he's just for better or for worse. Like, um, uh, it's wild to watch sometimes. So, um, it, it all of his movies do have this intensity to them and, and that uh, is enhanced by the IMAX stuff. So, um, overall, yeah, I do think you should go see it in IMAX. Cause like he is, uh, one of the only guys, who is a master of that format, I think. And, and can um, afford it. I think like he, if it yeah. wasn't because of the movies that he's made previously, the dark Knight trilogy inception, Dunkirk yeah. interstellar, um, 
you know, if it, if it was him just coming off of insomnia, he wouldn't be able to get these yeah. kind of movies made. But because no. he's earned that in in the last almost I think two decades now, as a filmmaker, you know, he's able to champion this very rare experience that you again. I I think you are making a really good point about if you live close to one of these theaters, support the theater as well. You know, because yeah. you don't want to lose something that is such a rarefied thing already. Where and you don't want them to be like, it's not worth the hassle, right? Yeah, like, we're going to turn it into some condos or something, you know? Yeah, or even just uh, studios going, well, is it really worth printing these film prints and things like that if not enough people are going to them? But like, I do think there are enough of us, whether it's those people in that bubble who really do care about that stuff. Um, and then it being this kind of event kind of thing because movies are mostly shown on digital i think even some people outside of that bubble are going oh i've heard it's projected on film we should go see it like that because we don't really get that much anymore i mean the technical issues that we've heard about this weekend not great um but that's what you get when you kill a format and try to bring it back once every five years and like um like the podcast people... yeah <laughs> um like yeah yeah um like when you don't have people properly trained, like I heard, I don't know if it's true that they had to fly in someone from IMAX in California to run the IMAX prints in Mississauga and Vaughn. Oh, wow. Because they didn't, because they don't have anyone trained to run such a, like it's, it's a crazy print. Like it is humongous and those projectors are hard to run. And, and if you don't have people that know how to use those IMAX film projectors, you had to bring in people to do that. Um, and then regular film projectors, there's still not that many people that um, are able to kind of do that. Like I worked at a movie theater at the tail end of of film in the beginning of digital. I was at the Oshawa Cineplex when they were getting rid of all their film projectors and putting in digital. So I was still able to get there and they would train normal teenagers to just run the film projectors, right? But now I just feel like that's why you're getting so many issues at all of these screenings, which I, I would just say be patient and understand that that's part of it. Like, do I would I wish that Cineplex would be better at this stuff? Yes. Um, that's a whole other can of worms though, it. right? Yeah. Where Cineplex, so, I think like yeah. they could do better. Should they this could have treat been their employees yes. better. Yes. Well, because I'm just looking at this now. So the, the 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 IMAX film print is 11 miles long and it yeah. weighs 600 pounds. So they had to build only... a new platter for it because it was yeah. so big because the, the maximum was two and a half hours, which is why um, a lot of Nolan's other movies were right on the dot at 2.30 and then he got them to extend it to 2.45 and now he got them to extend <laughs> it to three hours. So and he's like, I think this is as high as it can possibly go if you want a movie on film and IMAX. So um, that's the experience of seeing it in 70 millimeter. Do I think it's worth it? I absolutely do think if you have it near you, I think it's like a two week um, engagement that they're doing with the IMAX film of it. So if you have an opportunity to do it. Um, and you're remotely interested or you already saw the movie in digital or something like that, I still think it's worth, if you can handle it a second time or are interested in it a second time, uh, to go see it uh, in IMAX film. And second best to that, I would say, try to see it in 70 millimeter film. Third best, IMAX laser. 
and then um or IMAX laser, I, I still think is going to be a good experience. So, um, for uh, I just be- on your iPhone or iWatch, yeah, the way it was intended. Someone said you should watch Barbie and Oppenheimer on a Nintendo DS and <laughs> one screen. Like, now, I, another thing I'm very thing, curious so. about, um, you know, talking about July specifically, um, and and we'll never really know probably the answer to this. I wonder how. Tom Cruise is going to see Oppenheimer just because of Oppenheimer being the movie that with kicked, popcorn for sure. Definitely. Uh, always, always with popcorn, popcorns and movies, you know, love them both. Do we uh, honestly think he goes to the movies all the time? No, or, I don't think no. he ever goes. I don't think he yeah. eats popcorn. <laughs> yeah. I, I said it's... like, those are the first three, three kernels of popcorn he's, he's ever, ever eaten. Yeah. The popcorn from uh, Cineplex, the, the CGI popcorn. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it, that's gonna. I think that would be interesting as well to, to know if he did go and see Oppenheimer and IMAX just because of mission impossible being, being kicked out of uh, IMAX for Oppenheimer and there being a little bit of resentment there uh, on Cruz and Macquarie's part of that movie, not having more time in that format and seeing it in that, that yeah. way. So I think that would be interesting as well. Um, just, just in, in, in terms of like how he, if he did watch them, I'm sure he, I'm sure he does watch movies. I just think he's more of a casual movie goer and, you know, he's also weirdly, probably the actual savior of cinema because of Top Gun Maverick more so than Nolan was uh, with Tenet. So. Hey, but Greta Gerwig with Barbie right now too. Yeah. Like I feel like. Oh, uh, she's not the savior. She's like the Messiah of cinema. Yeah, <laughs> love it. <laughs> you know? Uh, all right. So that's kind of going to wrap up our like experience of Barbenheimer as that double feature in IMAX 70 millimeter. How did the digital look, Eric? Like it, it, it looked, looked okay? fine. It, it, yeah. it looked fine. It, it had kind of a faux film texture to it yeah. and seeing it in um, the only thing I didn't like about it. And this is just um, the, the layout of varsity and it's not necessarily varsity's fault per se. Varsity eight, right? Varsity yeah. eight. It's that, that yeah. you have the uh, sort of the, the, is it the, down, the old school kind of uh, it's line, not like, stadium seating it's like a classic slope seat, seating kind yeah, of thing yeah so right? it's yeah. almost like playing a game of russian roulette in a way because you never know who's going to sit in front like of you you don't want a giant right? to sit in front of you yeah yeah, yeah exactly no, I so I, I was lucky there where um Kyle who took the bullet for me um somebody did sit in front of me that was much taller but um he was like I'll switch with you cuz you need to see this for review. So I just want right. to say thank you to Kyle for that. And my experience with watching Barbie, I saw it at a, a promo screening at Scotiabank theater. Um, it was also theater eight, weirdly enough, um, was not, it's not the best theater, but I think watching it with both film critics and influencers did something in a way that was kind of even more joyful than I was expecting it to be because the people that were watching it, we're also, you know, cosplaying, dressing up in pink and 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 completely immersed in the experience. Yeah. And that on top of it being a great movie truly, I think, makes for one of the best experiences um, going to the cinema this year and and such such one to cherish. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think like, again, you know, maybe before we go into the reviews maybe we should talk quickly about like what you would recommend, like the way what film you should see first. Yeah. I love that. Um, I, I personally, maybe it's because of the way, um, I saw it. Um, I love 
Oppenheimer first, Barbie second. And I, I think that because I just prefer the, like Oppenheimer is this, you know, intense and depressing kind of movie, especially like the end of it and just where, you know, the state of the world. And I mean, Barbie handles a lot of that kind of stuff too, but in a much different way. So that's why I do think that they are a great double feature, but um, the kind of uh, emotionally taxing nature of Oppenheimer and its subject matter and where it leaves you. Um, I think it was very welcoming to go into Barbie afterwards, even though I was emotionally exhausted from Oppenheimer and then be kind of woken up again. Right. Like not that I was sleepy or anything, but like uh, Barbie is so joyful and, and energetic and funny and um, still has great social commentary and, um, and, and is impactful and emotional, but like, I think ending on that was, I think uh, the preferred way for me, like, I think ending on that high and that fun energy of Barbie, um, I think is, is a great way to have both of those movies. Cause I still think you can be emotionally devastated or, or uh, in both films, but from Oppenheimer, especially like you do need time. Like I only had a 40 minute gap in between the two movies, which might be quite short and it is kind of a whiplash uh double feature where you're like they couldn't be opposite in their tones and 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 aesthetic color palettes and aesthetic and stuff like that but um very happy i did them on the same night and i i think oppenheimer first barbie second however that's if you're seeing them like on the same day i have slightly different opinion if you're going i'm only going to go see one this weekend i'd personally say it depends what mood you're in, but I think Barbie with a full crowd to Eric's point that he just mentioned with people who are very into the movie, who are dressing up, who are there to have a good time, who are there to laugh like Barbie is a comedy. Um, and I think comedies, much like horror movies, are enhanced with a large crowd. I think you could watch Oppenheimer in an empty IMAX cinema by yourself and have the same experience as if it was packed where Barbie I think with a full crowd will be much more enjoyable than watching Barbie alone like three weeks later. Like, and I still think Barbie is a very good movie and it's still worth seeing alone three weeks later. I just think that Barbie is enhanced by that, um, communal experience. Yeah. Communal experience. So I think like if you're choosing one, just go see Barbie, you can see Oppenheimer later and, and have that same experience. Uh, if you only want to go to the movies once, um, if you're doing them in the same day, Oppenheimer first, Barbie second, because you're going to see both movies anyway, and it's going to be busy at both movies anyway. So that's my two cents. Uh, Eric, what about you? You know, I don't disagree with you. And if you're doing it on the same day, um, but there is something about the way that I saw it that that is that is the influence of why I'm recommending Barbie first, because I feel Bar and this is also because of my review, which we'll be getting into in a little bit. I think Barbie is the better movie. I agree. Just by and, and not even comparing them in terms of like it's hard things of existentialism yeah. and things like that, but more so with the feeling that it gives you after watching it. I I, I feel like if you're watching Oppenheimer first and then you're going into Barbie second, and you only have say. 40 minutes or even less time than that to digest Oppenheimer is such a weighty movie that not. And and again, Barbie is as well, but 
it's so depressing that yeah. there there is something a little bit more um there's there, there there's a pick me up about Barbie that feels like when you're when you're watching it and where it ends that it's okay to have these thoughts and and considerations about life and be depressed but also you know want to dismantle the patriarchy and things like that but there is a a, a not necessarily an overly positive message to the end but one that it's assuring that we can keep going on that we can keep Being moving human, on as yeah. as a human being where the end of Oppenheimer is pretty nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and, yeah, and, right. it, and it leaves you in a place where it's like, yeah, he, he, he was able to, you know, do what he had to and explain his side of the story and, you know, move on. But that guilt that he's racked with as a person for potentially being responsible for the deaths of millions, thousands of people is something that, it, it it holds a lot more weight there. And because it is a historical biopic, you, I think you're going to kind of be almost in, entrenched with that a little bit more than you are with Barbie, where Barbie, again, that feeling of coming out of that eu- euphoria, that, that pleasantness, that, that feeling of like, you saw something that is both cinematically satisfying, but also, very smart with how it's handling yeah. its approach to IP and product placement. And we've seen a lot of that. You you alluded to it already, but we've seen that with not only Super Mario Brothers and Dungeons and Dragons, but, you know, even with Air and Blackberry and Flamin' Hot, you know, all these movies that um, even even Spider-Verse, you know, that are sell that, that have that kind of double edged sword of trying to market these movies as as popcorn entertainment that have a little bit more to them based on the prestigious nature behind them the, the directors the writing the, the the cast but there still is okay well is this movie kind of selling you on these things still to buy them after the fact yeah cool yeah um all right let's get into all right you know our opinions we think both movies are worth seeing um, if you're that was mostly spoiler free, but we're going to get into reviews of both films, um, which will be complete with spoilers. The movies are out now. Um, you should go see both. Um, if you haven't yet, come back and then you can kind of hear us discuss uh, both movies. Eric, what do you want to start with? Oh, that, that's I mean, we kind of that's a perfect that's like, a, like where, where yeah, do, so what like, do reviewers start with? <laughs> yeah, like I don't think man, many people are going to separate this, but we thought like we this was a fun thing. Like we, a lot of people have their reviews out for both movies already. This is kind of I think a an interesting way to do a podcast review of this movie because you're talking about them as that double feature, but we will review them individually. I say we start huh huh um let's start with Barbie cuz I okay. think we both are very enthusiastic about that movie. Um, and I think, you know, Oppenheimer will be a good conversation as well. Um, but I think we both really, really loved Barbie and which is a wild thing to say. And, um, uh, let's start there. So, uh, we are going to begin our review of Barbie. If you haven't seen it, we're spoiling the shit out of it. Please go see it. I think it's definitely worth your time. Um, all right. We've kind of gone over both movies, but, um, I'll kick it off too. And I, I, we've both kind of alluded to this, but, um, I am amazed by this movie. Um, <laughs> I think it is uh, 
a masterpiece and I think it's the best use of IP I've seen in a quite long time as this I tweeted this so if you follow me or hearing me repeat myself but like as this Trojan horse to get a studio to give you 150 million dollars to make this you know um movie that includes that, that this very feminist movie about you know uh, this how it is to be a woman and to be human and to um just having wonderful social commentary but it's also um very very funny it's one of the funniest movies of the year um if not the funniest uh, one of the best comedies i've seen in a long time but then greta gerwig just showing that she is one of the best working directors today of um injecting this energy and this this um zest for life and to be a woman and and to uh, it, it was just i couldn't believe what i was watching it is um unhinged in the best ways um where at every moment it's just like what you're watching on screen is just like i had to like close my eyes and blink multiple times because i'm like what the fuck is happening in a good way <laughs> um like you it's very easy to follow but like just what you're seeing on screen you almost can't believe works as well as it does because it did remind me of you know obviously the Lego movie and and and, and things like that there's many other movies you're going to reference but of recent of taking a toy and making it more than and actually having something to say and making it very clever and very funny so is the easiest reference you'll get into some more of the deep cuts and film references and things like that but um I just think its production design is impeccable, is amazing. Its costumes are amazing. The 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 soundtrack is banging. The original song, like Ryan Gosling is a wonder. Margot Robbie is incredible. Um it's just so well put together. Um and I, as both just this kind of popcorn entertainment, but then if you look deeper, there is this emotional core to the movie that I think is so strong that um, you would have never guessed is in a Barbie movie. Like when some, it's it's just one of those things when you're like, oh my god, they're making a Barbie movie. What the hell's that going to be? And you're like, okay, these people are attached. Ah, that doesn't sound great. Okay, they dropped out. And you're like, Greta Gerwig and directing and Noah Baumbach co-writing with her. You're like, that could be something, but or could it just be like a movie about a toy? And you know, she's cashing out and making a a, a buck, but she's able to, um use that in the best way where yes it's cashing out yes it's doing a big blockbuster yes it's doing this big ip that like um much in the vein of a marvel or a star wars or something like that of like selling out but this is the best way of selling out is like keeping what makes you you and what makes your movies special and injecting it into this trojan horse to convince you know, $160 million worth of tickets to be sold for people to think they're seeing a movie about a toy, but there's so much more to it. And like, um, I just fucking love this movie and I can't wait to get into it more, but those are my quick thoughts. Matt, this movie is absolutely sublime. It's so um, good. It is. It's an incredible to watch. And I also used the 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 the, the descriptor Trojan horse in my Rogers okay, review. Cool. I, did, because, I didn't know that. I, I wrote no, that no, no, before no. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So and and I wrote that before that. But I'm sure there's a lot of people that have that oh, similar yeah, the, feeling of not you know like taking a, IP and product and you know filling up tricking a, people <laughs> a, a Barbie dream house with you know existential quandaries about like life that. and sort of the breakdown of it. Um, 
Yeah, you're watching this and 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 it keeps evolving and changing over the course of the movie. And at first when you're presented with it, you know, with the uh the Lizzo song coming in and how that's kind of meta and, you know, singing a song that's literally, you know, basically telling you what's happening, but it also the 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 music itself sounds like something out of an 80s movie, you know, something like uh, Adventures uh, in, in Babysitting. You know, it, yeah. it has that kind of quality to it. And then you mentioned the production design, you know, the artificial kind of quality of the sets and the pastels and the exterior being, you know, completely fake. But the way that Gerwig as a director and as a co-writer injects not only authenticity but emotion into the story and into these very kind of fake looking structures is similar to films that she's been referencing over the course of these press junkets you know you you look at um you know french new wave filmmaker jacques demy um the umbrellas of shoreborg specifically that have that has had an influence not only on her recently, but Damien Chazelle for La La Land. He talked a lot about it. Yeah. Uh, Barry Jenkins talked about um, that for uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. And he also talked about uh, In the Mood for Love, which I think in Wong Kar Wai's movie also took a lot from The Umbrellas of Shoreborg. So you're seeing a lot of these American filmmakers coming in and taking French influences from the 1950s and those French influences from the 1950s were taking their influences from 1930s Americana. So it's this weird cycle, um, you know, that's happening and then moving a little further away from the 1950s because Jacques Tati didn't fit into that criteria, but playtime is one of those movies that uses its sets as as a way to choreograph almost dance numbers, you you watch a sequence in the Mattel building where Barbie is escaping from Will Ferrell's Mattel CEO and the way that people are moving in and out of the scene is right out of playtime. It's it's like just the movement of human bodies in a unassuming kind of corporate office, but the symmetry of it all um, is fantastic. This would also weirdly make a great double bill not just because Margot Robbie's in both and they're two of the best films of the year, but even like looking at Wes Anderson, you know, Wes Anderson's yeah. a guy that's been using kind of artifice more and more as he moves on. And it's kind of been a year, I think of, you know, finding human frailty and fragility, blonde fragility uh, in uh, the, 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 the facade of, of, of kind of a, a, a fake, exterior even Bo is afraid i think is a movie that i thought of that too dealt with it and and so you're watching that and you're thinking to yourself oh, okay like and and and, an, and another filmmaking duo that scorsese's been a big fan of i mean um you know since the beginning with with uh powell and pressburger a matter of life and death is one of those movies where it's like you choose to you know, live again and to live a different way or to live a way that isn't what you're, you're being told to, and to have that second chance to come back and make your own way about the world. And Margot Robbie's characters, you know, her, where her art goes, isn't dissimilar to David Niven or even, you know, someone, um, and I can't believe I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, uh, partly it's a, it's a remake, but you look at, 
um, Wings of Desire or the remake of it, um, City of Angels with with Nick Cage, uh, Bruno Gans and Nick Cage's character, where it's like, you know, do you want to live among the people as a human being? And that conversation is very similar to those movies and, and that being a reference point. But then, you know, if you're looking at it from the point of view of being a meta movie lover, this is almost, this could have been re- if it, if Barbie wasn't such a brand name title, they could have renamed this movie to Last Action Figure, in the way that <laughs> Last Action Hero yeah. kind of feels almost like a kin. I would love to do a double feature of those two movies because you have, you know, uh, American for America Ferrera and um, uh, Ariana uh, Greenblatt as a mother daughter and that's an interesting storyline in itself but the the daughter being more cynical and and kind of frustrated with the 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 gender stereotype and sort of the the roadblock that barbie has become to women and 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 young girls and so when you're watching those scenes you're you're kind of reminded of a reverse version of schwarzenegger and the kid from last action hero but on top of that Ken's trajectory is actually very similar to Charles Dance in that movie, where Charles Dance's character comes into the real world, and in the real world, he can get away with murder. And in his own movie universe, he can't get away with those things without the police chasing him. And so he brings his world into the real world where it's also the reverse version of Ken being corrupted in our world by the patriarchy and, (laughs) and, and, and what it is to be a man. And he takes that and brings it back into his world and creates cancel, cancel culture basically in Woodstock 99. So there's so much going on with just those incredible references alone. But on top of that, Gerwig knows how to, cut a great comedic scene the reaction yeah. shots in particular the compositions are beautiful the emotions um are so strong i think this is robbie's best performance and yeah the way that again that city of angels wings of desire thing of the more time she spends in the real world she's becoming more human and realizing that there's so much complexity in the world that it's hard to kind of distill into just saying these platitudes of being, Oh, well, Barbie is now something, you know, Barbie land is a progressive place. Yeah. It's a, it's a place that, that, but it's not. And that's the thing that's also interesting because what I don't understand is how anybody could watch this movie and say that it's anti-men no, when it's if not, you get to the end of it, it's not really. It's, it's not saying at that all. the way yeah. that Barbie Land is is also not the right way. It's not Ken's. Like, yeah, that Ken should be his own man, his own person. It's and not it's, just and Ken. Yeah. yeah, and and yes, Gosling is on another level here. He's always <laughs> so he's always he's he's the best Ryan uh, when it comes yeah. to Canada's uh, exports, but. He's always been one of those guys that's been great in everything, but he's always been played in one way or another, comedic or dramatic. He is such an amazing comedic talent. Just certain expressions, um, physical gestures are incredible. As a dramatic actor, he makes you feel incredibly moved by his performances, but no filmmaker has utilized both in the same movie up until now. 
I think Greta Gerwig uses both. And even in the same scene where you feel incredibly sorry for the man or the plastic man, the toy, the yeah. toy, <laughs> but at the same time, um, you understand where the character is learning sort of these bad behaviors. And I think that's another really important thing about this movie. And Gerwig understands this that the entire movie is that Barbie land and the way that these characters are interpreting the real world is through the eyes of a child because it's, it's I know that's children, what I, yeah. it's children playing with action figures and how children interpret the world is how these action figures interpret the world. And so yep. it never forgets this. This is basically the best live action Pixar movie that Pixar has never made. You nailed it. And I mean, Pixar already did Barbie and Ken very, very well. And Michael Toy Keaton and, and, and Jody Benson. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. But I, I agree with every point you've made. Like the way that, you know, Barbie going into the real world and then having to defeat the patriarchy now in Barbie land and then having Ken who, you know, represents what how young men are corrupted by the world that they live in and, and you know, fall in line with the patriarchy and, and feel accepted and important um, because of it and, and how that can kind of as they get older and, and see more of the world want to just kind of fall into that because, uh, it is perfect. And then, uh, and then that coming back to Barbie land and then having it represent, you know, uh, women in general, having to take down the patriarchy or at least deal with the patriarchy. Like it, it just perfectly captures in, it's such a simple and obvious kind of, um, juxtaposition between, you know, trying to portray this, you know, real world versus, you know, utilizing this fake Barbie world and representing our world and what it is to feel, be human and be a woman, but using toys to represent all of that. Like it, it's, it, it goes so much deeper than surface level, even though at its core, it's a very simple kind of, of concept. And like, yeah, there are um, ex- like Ryan Gosling, man. Like it's just <laughs> like every fucking moment is, is so funny you brought up william zabka in in cobra kai and and young that- young uh william zabka yeah. particularly when anytime william zabka wears a headband yeah and that perfect. platinum blonde hair and there's certain it's, expressions that god it's that himbo has. perfect yeah. himbo kind of performance right but then there's quieter moments from robbie where i just wasn't expecting in this movie there's that moment at the bus stop with the uh, the older woman that um has been brought up a lot in articles lately of how that's the one scene Mattel wanted to cut and they they fought for it um and it's such a beautiful quiet human moment it's really the first moment Barbie is feeling truly human right where she sees you know you can age gracefully and be beautiful in old age and it doesn't have to be this perfect like you know I stay the same my whole life I'm skinny and and beautiful and 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 you know and young and and things like that like the first moment she sees this woman is such a quiet wonderful moment and then you get that throughout the movie where in between these ridiculous fucking scenes that are just absurd and unhinged and hilarious you get these like quiet human moments from from Robbie or or from America Ferreira's um uh 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 character and her daughter and and um and like you get these montages of 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 families and life and and women and just like that's the kind of stuff I wasn't um expecting throughout the movie and and it gerwig just like you said uh, it knows how to perfectly place those moments in between on 
eccentric, uh, crazy dance music number from Ken or whatever, right? Like, or like the, you know, or this zany kind of uh, Mattel office building scene where, you know, Will Ferrell, again, the Lego movie comparisons, he's essentially- well, Elf too. Um, an Elf, yeah. Because he like, was Barbie in Elf. <laughs> yeah, Coming into the real world as a uh, fish um, out of water comedy. And just that, you know, that scene in the boardroom in Mattel and that chase sequence, like it, it, it plays off in this artificial, but human way. And that, like, that sounds like it shouldn't work, but like it just, every scene I kept going, this shouldn't work. Like there should be something. How is this working? Like, yeah, like every sequence. Cause there's just this, this layer of artifice on it, but then this like deep human connection you feel throughout this whole movie where like nothing feels real. Like even the stuff in the real world, other than like some of those moments doesn't feel like you're in the real world, but like the absurdity of it, like then connects you in some way to it. It's just this, it, it it's wild. Like just the way this, um, you know, I, I just kept laughing at even like any of the Will Ferrell moments of like, um, it happened again. <laughs> like, and then, it, and then them describing Skipper, Skipper, Skipper yeah. Me. And then like, uh, it's just like the absurdity of the real world matching Barbie land and just like point and using that to point out the absurdity and how we are in the real world by making it as artificial as Barbie land of being like, what the fuck is this like this world that we live in like and and we need to fix this shit and and women have been treated so poorly and like um well even men again even men men are being led down this road of thinking you have to look like sylvester stallone in a rocky poster no it's a very feminist movie but i i agree that it's not a man-hating movie at all like i think it takes a lot of shots at men deservingly like and they're very funny and they're poignant and they're perfect but like and me like i I had a woman ceo once If you're very insecure as a man, you might get offended at some of it. But if you even look at the end of it, I'm actually kind of surprised that she, you know, goes like, no, Barbie land's not perfect either. This matriarchal system that they, this perfect world that they built there is not fair to the Kens either. (laughs) And like Ken needs to be his own man and all the Kens need to be their own man. And they're not just, you know, uh, and Ken and attached to Barbie. Like, I think that was an important thing that she didn't have to do and i think it could have been valid not to do that and just to shit on ken and shit on men the whole movie and i think that would have been totally fair but like and it i think it it perfectly takes down that patriarchy but then also goes well i think there's some place we need to sort of maybe not meet in the middle maybe let's meet a little bit like we've gone so far on this side that maybe meeting in the middle isn't necessarily uh the right i think we need to start um, again we need to to start fresh yes and and they even the line of being like if if the Kens can even get to the point how women are treated in our society like then that's a, a a win for them and I think that's that's so good and there's so many great moments shout out to Michael Sarah um <laughs> you know as Ken's buddy Alan. Uh, Alan like every moment from um Michael Sarah is amazing um the monologue that America Ferreira gives um at Weird Barbie's house like um um I think is is fantastic um I think she is great um it's also in plastic um yeah um like all the Barbies uh shout out you know Kate McKinnon I just mentioned Weird Barbie's funny Issa Rae's great um 
I think having, you know, Emma Mackey in there was, it was going to be more of a thing of people keep saying that they look like each other, but you know, she, with brown hair versus blonde hair, you don't notice that at all. But like the cast is so incredible. John Cena showing up as Merman Ken, like is so funny. Um, Rhea Perlman uh, as Ruth Handler. Yeah. Um, the, The scene, and this also feels very Matrix esque in a way because we have, yeah. you know, the the Kate McKinnis scene where it's like you choose which shoe, which is like choosing the pill, you know, and then you have the scene between um, Rhea Perlman as Ruth Handler, the 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 ghost of the creator of um, Barbie. Just saying that out loud is sounds very like funny. It should work. <laughs> no, but it does. And what's amazing about that? She's basically the Oracle, you know, in the yeah. in the Matrix, where you know they're sitting down and having a conversation in this very um, rustic, beautiful home that's in this corporate office after this amazing chase sequence. And for a moment, it sits still and just yeah. has two actors talking to each other and having this very profound but really beautiful back and forth. And Rhea Perlman's one of those actors who's been known for you know being a sitcom person for forever on Cheers and kind of being almost like um, the butt of a comedic joke or kind of being the live wire and and here seeing her gives just such a a beautifully nuanced and thoughtful and calm and understanding performance and being very kind and considerate to Barbie without being overly smaltzy or sentimental um, I think is really fascinating and calculated and, and and thoughtful and it's the same thing even with you know american ferrera and, and ariana greenblatt as, as the mother-daughter thing where you have uh, you know I, I was having problems remembering uh their, their names but i looked it up so it's it's gloria and sasha i think that is interesting not only in in terms of how one generation interprets the other and how kind yeah. of you have that divide between teen and, and and parent but what i was worried about and it's completely dashed is you're thinking there's going to be this tragic sad subplot about the father being dead that's not the case at all and it's no, this no, amazing no, yeah. joke this oh this my god it's so shot funny <laughs> of him sitting at home just mispronouncing Span- spanish, spanish yeah. which i think yeah. is very funny because you think like oh are they going to explain why sasha is so down or morbid because no, she they're lost just a her regular father. american no. family right he's yeah. like a nice guy he's like a boring nice guy right yeah. like that's basically, but that joke is incredible like, yeah like oh i i that landed with me perfectly oh my god the Zack snyder's justice league joke man like i cackled and i was the only person in my theater that laughed as hard as i did because like, yeah. like well, warner brothers very, signing off on that is amazing yeah i mean they're the whole dc you is is in shambles so like i mean um i'm sure they at this point they're not going to work with Zack snyder anymore so they don't care but like yeah. um uh that joke is is a one of those very niche it's not niche because like that's one of those bubble jokes the film bubble jokes right like i don't think you know the group of women who are going to see i'm not trying to stereotype or anything i just think that that's one of those things that you might laugh at it but specifically Zack snyder's justice cut of justice league is such like a uh, a, a bro thing. Yeah. bro thing that, and, or a filmy thing that I think like I, I could tell that me laughing the hardest at that joke. I'm like, Oh, that didn't land as hard for everyone else, but that was funny as hell to me. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but still funny overall. But I think just me knowing that like that toxic culture is, is, um, 
made that joke very funny. The whole musical sequence with um, I'm I'm just Ken is fantastic. I can't wait for um, Gosling to perform that at the Oscars. Hopefully the strike's over by then. Um, well, it, it, and that's also another re- reference to, you know, um, Bob Fosse and all that jazz and, and how that yeah. plays out. And, and when they're all singing in unison at the end, you know, I'm just Ken and I'm enough. You know, yeah. it, it is very funny but there is something sincere about that delivery and and again that's going to gosling's performance where he's funny but he's also being emotionally vulnerable and open to feeling like he just is made for one thing for one purpose you know yeah and and nobody should be or 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 is and watching that is incredible and then even you know thinking about Megan earlier this year, one of my favorite bits in that movie was the commercial that's in the film. And then the, oh the Mattel commercial one about depression, depressed Barbie emotionally, I found very moving Yeah, because when my mom and dad were divorcing, my mom would, every time she'd pick me up from school or the babysitters, me and my brothers, the one, the two things that she would always watch all the time was Oprah but then she would also watch the the 90s Colin Farrell BBC Pride and Prejudice okay, over and yeah. over again when she was going through a lot. And so watching that, I was like, that hit that, really hard. That, yeah. yeah. And that really speaks to, I think, like finding comfort in something yeah. that, that you love, but maybe also at the same time, you know, is because Jane Austen was, you know ahead of her time and, and, and was also a feminist and, and things like and it's that's, that's just interesting as well, because it's not, you think like Greta Gerwig would, you know, do a meta thing where she would add like a version of little women or something like that. But no, it's like the 19, I think it's 97 or 96 version of um, pride. Maybe it's a little bit earlier with Colin Farrell and, and Jennifer L. And so, you know, like just those little touches as well, I think speak so much to, to all generations in, in in a lot of ways, like even having Helen Mirren as, as the narrator that comes in from time to time and mentioning, you know, we understand that, you know, maybe it wasn't the best idea to cast Margot Robbie as this character. Yeah. When you you want to feel this certain way about her not liking her looks or something like that. Yeah. But I think that's, uh, that's very normal too. And like, that's what I mean by this being a very feminist movie, but it's a very human movie as well. Right. And then you, like you mentioned earlier of using a toy as this metaphor for like even growing up and starting to have thoughts about death and, and you're, and, and, and like, that's all I'm terrified of death. It's one of my like weird anxieties I have, um, that I fixate on. So all of that stuff, I think you, you yearn for the days, uh, of being, you know, that childlike innocence where you just go about your day and everything's perfect and and you're not thinking about real life, right? You're just like, everything's great. My video games are great as a, as a young boy and stuff like that. But all of that can, you can look at Barbie in the beginning of this. And it's not just about being human, but it's also about growing up and, and you know, realizing these things. And, you know, obviously that's portrayed through um, America Ferreira's character projecting that onto a toy but that's what we all do and just representing that as this real figure and just that um idea of as you get older you start to realize some of these things and that you start to get scared or you start to notice these things on your body or um uh, you know all of this stuff i think is very human right it's not just it is very much told from a a a woman's perspective but you know even, even as a 34 year old man watching a movie about barbies like i still got so much 
from the human experience out of all of that. And um, that's what I was amazed at. And like, so, it, you know, it can, it handles so many different things. And then um, and it's just perfect, man. Like it's as close to perfect as, as I'd want something like this to be. And, um, and that being said, I just laughed my goddamn ass off too. Like there's like, I didn't expect to have tears in my eyes in certain moments, but just like, laughing as much as I did and it's all very clever and nothing feels like you know like any comedy some things don't land as hard as as other things but I I think more than not like it's hitting at like an 80 to 90 percent clip of like I'm laughing consistently throughout the whole thing and it's so fast paced and the rhythm is there but the rhythm also changes when you know Barbie and Ken enter the real world and as they come back into Barbie land and have to kind of work out their own problems. And I think that that's even something that could be missed on the first time around where you're watching these characters evolve. You know, you just mentioned how, you know, not only death, but how age changes a person. And you see that represented in, you know, one morning you wake up and, things aren't going as smoothly as they used to, or, you know, physically you're not the same person that you were when you were in your twenties versus when you're in your thirties or in your teens. And you have to make peace with that in a certain way because the body and mind change. And, you know, you might not feel from your, 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 your mind's perspective that you're any different from when you were 18 or 19, but, you know, physically you are changing. And so like the things that were easier for you in your younger days might not come as easy as they once did. And that is beautifully portrayed in a, in a way where it's Both also- that bus sequence, the sequence with Ruth Handler, like, yeah. But when like, Barbie's and, first and having Barbie's, problems, right? Yeah. Like when she, when she wakes up in the morning and like the totally, shower yeah. isn't working or when she's trying to, you know, float off the top of her dream house and she kind of falls like it's it's it, these things it's like when she's just first wake up one morning stuff, and you sure. realize you're not who you were yes, two or three years or like, ago yeah. you know and and i just mean her in those two sequences specifically and then there's that kind of montage where she's seeing like life and which i've already mentioned before like that's going back to those moments and realizing why she was feeling that way and why that's okay and um i think is is so poignant and and gorgeous and then um yeah, just it, it's just an impeccably made fun movie that has a great message and just uh, is an absolute blast. So I'm going to give the movie five stars. I think it's one of my favorite movies of the year. I think Greta Gerwig um, is absolutely um, one of the best filmmakers working today. And this is coming from someone who didn't love little women but um uh and even my first watch of ladybird i wasn't one over but that was in a very uh different experience where i was in the middle of tiff when i was like in a bad mood and i saw ladybird and i was like i didn't like that then watch ladybird again i was like no this is great um so i i just i can't wait to see you know the rest of her career and and as a director and Am I excited for, you know, some Narnia movies? Not really, but I mean, hey, I wasn't excited for Barbie either. So I'm ready for those to win me over. So um, what a a great movie. Yeah, I'm very close to giving this a five. I just think I want to rewatch it one more time. So I'm going to give it a four and a half. But even things like the way that I think Gerwig, you know, I, I, I think she's older than us, but the way that she brings in the early 2000s into she's 39 old, yeah she's 39 so the way that she she brings in 
the early 2000s into both Lady Bird and this, you know, the Dave Matthews oh, song yeah. crash into me in, 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 um, in Lady Bird and how it recontextualizes the song, but still kind of says it's okay to enjoy it for what it is. But, you, you know, you should also look at the lyrics of this and things like that. It, th- there's this similar kind of conversation going on with Matchbox 20's push uh, and how that's kind of played and, and turned into this really warped ballad uh, <laughs> by the Kens and how Ryan Gosling delivers that. And, you know, even, you know, the use of, of, of a couple of, of bars in the score of, of uh, Butterfly by, by uh, uh, Crazy, I think it's Crazy Town. Yeah, um, where yeah. that was also used in uh, Orange County. I remember that was kind of like a big selling point off of that. I soundtrack. know we're at that part where we're going to start hearing American Pie music in like, and I, that's what I attribute to the two thousands is all those yeah. songs that were in the. Well, it's all new Pie metal, movies. right? Like, it's yeah. all, but it's also new metal. Like, when are we going to get you know that point where you know Limbiscuit is being used unironically in something, or maybe a little bit? This they're using this ironically, but but I do feel that there is going to be people that grew up with those songs that maybe have nostalgia for them where maybe we don't because we grew Mm. up in that period and maybe we did like them then i mean i remember liking songs by puddle of mud and then you go back and you're like oh what was i thinking no i did too man i was the king of of i love three days grace and like all of these trapped and um all these fucking bad new metal kind of bands and stuff like that yeah it perfectly handles all that stuff like um I think she would be still considered a millennial, like an elder millennial, like we are too. But um, that's but it's just interesting that that, that period that she like hits. that she she's taking a she's lot of nostalgic cultural. for her. yeah, and like and 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 we'll poke fun at that kind of um, that era and stuff too, and and all the Ken stuff later in the movie, um, the ca- Casa Dojo, <laughs> what was it ca- Casa Dojo? Hold on, uh, I gotta look it up. It's so funny too, and like all the just the, his obsession with horses um random and hilarious and uh but again that's the child logic right yeah. like when a child is interpreting or or what, seeing how other yeah. people behave they take those influences for better or worse good or bad but it's the way that they interpret them and you don't think like oh i would interpret this uh, the patriarchy as you know like riding a horse yeah. or 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 having horses or having you know mini fridges and you know, giant bottles of protein powder, but like, that's what, that's his version of the patriarchy. And this is another movie that deals with having a conversation about those things. And obviously I don't want to compare it because this happened in reality, but I think that this is a continued conversation in a different form to what Sarah Pauly was having with women talking. You know, totally, these isolated yeah. communities having a conversation about how the real world is versus their own world and what's good and bad about both. And, you know, that dialogue continuing in a way. So, yeah, four and a half out of five. It's very close to a five. I think it will be once I see it again. Um, but this is just one of the most truly, I, I don't like using this word, but like it is a special film. And it really is such a beautifully made uh, movie, but it's also just extremely entertaining and funny and poignant. It's it's all these things wrapped into one um, product and you're getting so much more than what this movie deserves and what Mattel deserves from Greta yeah. Gerwig. So, um, and, and I honestly do think now after this weekend and after this movie, 
don't like saying like, oh, I have to compare her to a man or anything, but this is her entering the same level as Spielberg with Jaws or Jurassic Park. This is her, this is this is her big blockbuster that way. And I think from now on, she will be on that Mount Rushmore of filmmakers that I think people will recognize and know moving forward. If they I don't hope already. so, man. Like I, I know we gave that title to a couple people. Uh, you know, famously M. Night Shyamalan was on the cover of what was it, Time or or was yeah. it a film magazine or something like that? But um of like the next Spielberg and stuff like that. Like I, I really do have faith that she will be in that kind of group of filmmakers that um you know, and I think you know, people were cynical about this too of her like signing on for those Narnia movies and talking about how she wants to be a big director and and make big movies, but it I think this should prove that she can take um you know what made her great as a quote unquote smaller filmmaker um and inject that into these big we need more of this and you can tell how people are going out this weekend with Oppenheimer be and and Barbie being you know one's based on a very famous IP so that is kind of bending the rules a little bit but they're not franchises right like they're both original films <laughs> um using the loosest term for Barbie but like um and I think they're both you know uh, I guess kind of, you know, Nolan is very much a Nolan movie and we're going to get it in that two seconds, but they, they feel different than the repetitiveness we've been getting out of Hollywood and blockbusters. And this is coming from someone who loves the MCU and loves big action movies and dumb shit like that. But like both of these movies felt like something different. Right. And I think we're craving something different and you can see that in the box office spider verse, the same thing, right. Showcasing that we want something a little different like even if it is still a superhero movie give us something fucking different or like give us something with a good emotional core at least great you know animation we've never seen before and in nolan's case with a you know a a, an, a biopic um do it in a way we've never really seen before and i think that's uh you know to varying degrees of success is something we've never really seen before in a, in a biopic so let's get into that Let's talk about Oppenheimer. Oh, what, Quickly, what Ken's, you oh, Ken's uh, Mojo oh. Dojo Casa <laughs> House is is yeah, the name okay. of it. But I but I close. even think too. I don't want to because I, I I think I like Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning more than Oppenheimer. But I yeah. think to a lesser extent, I would include that as well in this month of July, just because yeah. it's giving us something that we haven't gotten in such a long time, which is practical in camera stunt you know work, uh, work yeah. and 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 practical effects which leads perfectly into Oppenheimer which you know Nolan has very been has been very adamant about this movie not using any CGI or post production effects um and so he's very much a, a guy that's like Cruz in that way where he wants to make everything as real and tangible as possible even if it's trying to figure out a way to depict the you know trinity test and the explosion of the first atomic bomb uh, atomic bomb uh, atomic bomb in uh, uh los uh, alamos so yeah so i think that that's an interesting kind of transition there going from uh the artificial becoming reality to reality becoming mor uh, morose and sort of almost depressing get into it man I i'll let you kick off this one i know um you 
we both, I think, liked the movie. Um, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. You had uh, a few more problems. But like, I'm going to kick it off to you first of yeah. giving your thoughts on Oppenheimer, and I'll be right back. Yeah, so Oppenheimer is such a handsomely made production that is trying to reckon with the complications of J. Robert Oppenheimer, played by Killian Murphy in the film, and his contributions to history and also being known as the father of the atomic bomb and also the horrors in which he brought into the real world and 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 obviously um the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki um in particular and so the story is a first person narrative all from the point of view of oppenheimer in the sequences that are shot in color so you know it's the subjective versus the objective and the black and white um being the more um objective and that being more from the point of view of robert downey jr's um politician character uh lewis strauss um who is being sort of you know who's who's up for a cabinet position and being um kind of brought into that but also having to use oppenheimer as a, a you know, railroading him essentially in uh, these hearings. And so this is during also, um, this is after World War II and in the the McCarthy era at this point where, you know, people are accusing other people of communism to save themselves or to, you know, take the pressure off. And so you have this story that's about, you know, World War II, the invention of something that I don't think any human being should have a responsibility for because it is basically uh, a threat to not only human beings, but to the world itself, because there is that conversation that um, Matt Damon's character, Leslie Groves has with um, Oppenheimer that, you know, there is that slight possibility that this could destroy the world if, you know, if it goes off and and it affects the atmosphere. Um, But watching the movie, I think the Trinity test is undeniable that sequence is perfect and then after that i felt a lot more goodwill towards the film and that's the last act is quite and that's usually not the case with nolan movies because nolan movies the, the 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 common interpretation um is that the third acts are usually where his movies kind of lose you a little bit. I've always felt that with like Batman Begins, I think that final sequence that takes place, you know, on uh, the, the train is where it goes a little bit off the rails, pun intended. Batman Um, Begins, my favorite Nolan Batman movie. Two thirds of that movie, I think are incredible. I think once it becomes more of a superhero movie in that conventional sense, when you get into the third act of it, and this is superhero movies in general, it, it kind of feels like it's going through the formula at that point where I felt like the Trinity test almost wiped the slate clean a little bit. And I was kind of enjoying it more. The thing I keep thinking about with this movie and he doesn't listen to his own conversation between the two characters. There's a conversation between Florence Pugh's Gene uh, Hatlock and, and, and uh, Oppenheimer about the communist party and Oppenheimer had communist leanings, although he never really officially joined where his brother and people that he were, was friends with were um, communists. 
and so this woman that he's having this affair with this his his quote unquote mistress who predates his relationship with his actual wife um kitty oppenheimer played by emily blunt who's basically invisible in the movie women in uh christopher nolan movies are still needs to work on it <laughs> underwritten on and 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 that's why i can't give like i think anybody that declares this movie a masterpiece i think needs to really look at that part of it because i think without you can argue okay well it's a first person narrative so it's all from yeah. the point of view of oppenheimer so you can give some some room there, some wiggle room. And this is that conversation I want to talk about because there's that conversation of wiggle room of not completely towing the line with the political party you're with and finding room to still also be an individual as well that Nolan doesn't completely adhere to when he's telling this story. He's such a formalist as a filmmaker that when he's trying to let loose and be gonzo in the way that he talks about his influences being, you know, someone like Terrence Malick who loses himself in a scene and doesn't necessarily follow structure all the time and kind of finds artistry and chaos and beauty within the moment and the human nature of it all. Nolan can't let go. He has such a hard time letting go of those things that, that when he tries, he just picks it up right away. And then the gonzo element that a lot of people are talking about with JFK which is also very funny because Gary Oldman was in JFK and he's in this as, as Harry Truman. Um, and then you also have a couple other actors like Tony Goldwyn and um, uh, Jason Clark. Goldwyn was in Nixon and um, uh, Clark was in uh, Wall Street, uh, Money Never Sleeps. You you have these moments where it's supposed to kind of be almost erratic or in Robert Downey Jr. as well, it being in, in Natural Born Killers, yeah. where you have moments where everything is supposed to kind of be all over the place and the subjective and the objective are bleeding into each other. And it's kind of playing in that memento territory where we're seeing, you know, the present day scenes of Guy Pierce's character, but then the reflections of Sammy Jenkins in the past. Always got to remember Sammy Jenkins, man. Yeah. And, and I think that that is not always successful when it comes to his narrative structure that he truly can't, let go and kind of show the kind of frantic process in a way that feels like those movies. And even though he's trying to do that, it doesn't always work. Um, I also do feel that some of the editing uh, becomes a little bit tedious in the way that we're watching Michael Bay films where the, the, the cuts feel like they don't hold for longer than three to five seconds. Uh, yeah, I noticed a, that too. There's and, a line um, of dialogue that I think is truly awful, which is a guy that works, I believe at Princeton, that's kind of helping him get, um, um, you know, representation in terms of legal representation. That's where Macon Blair's character comes in. And he says like, Oh, you're, he's telling you exactly what is going on. There's, there's no subtext. It's like, you're no. It's like you're up against. It's a kangaroo court. I, we, you're I can't up believe against everything. You I know? can't believe we haven't brought this up. But maximalism, man. Like both of these movies are maximalist films. I think, and like to I, a degree, I I still think I, that formalism of Nolan is uh, holding it back, and it's not as it's not as maximalist as 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 you think it is. I I I totally get why Paul Schrader loves this movie. Because a lot of the film is a man in a room 
giving his testimony to defending himself, <laughs> defending himself as a, as a patriot, as an American, but yeah. also still being critical of America as a whole. Yeah. In a time where, again, the Red Scare and McCarthyism and communism and people were being arrested or having to flee the country because of those things. But Nolan just, he can't right outside the lines. He, he, he has to be in complete and other utter dominance of everything. And when you're watching those scenes where he's starting to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, no, no, I'm going to hold on. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let go. It's, that's what do you where, mean by that? Sorry, like what you? No, no, no. Like, so, so, so there'll be moments where, especially in the third act, but throughout, where you you have the depression and psychology of the character and the timelines bleeding in or yeah. crossing into each other, and it feels like it's trying to go for something chaotic, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how we're seeing that frantic gonzo pacing of anything could happen. It doesn't feel real anymore, but it is. And there's something like, it's almost like the characters on a drug, you yeah. know, and, and everything is, is not as lucid as it once was at the beginning of the story in the way that, you know, you're being sleep deprived <laughs> or delirious, but Nolan can't completely let go of his own structure. And he, he's one of those guys that he's not Oliver Stone. He's not Terrence Malick. He's not somebody that can just simply say, let's find out what happens in this scene. Let's right. let things play out. Let's the auteur in him gets in his way. Yeah. You're saying of that objective, subjective black and white means this color means this. I've done this in my other films. I play with time in this certain way. I do this like that. His formality, I guess is what you were saying. Yes. It, yeah. it kind of gets in his own way a little bit. But there are still things I really like about the movie, and we'll, I, I'll let you talk now because, like, I think you have a, you you do have a much more positive take on it. But there are things throughout that I do like that are subtle. But again, yes, I think the formalism of Nolan's filmmaking sometimes gets in his way. I think the women are horribly written. I think there are some clunky lines of dialogue. Um, Killian Murphy as well. I think is good in the movie but there is something about his performance that part of it is he is an audience surrogate in a way to or conduit to this story but there are moments where he does kind of feel like a non-entity um and i think like i was more gravitating towards some of the people around him yeah, he ends up being like a project manager, right? And then, yeah. like, I know he is the figurehead, and he is the guy, you know, who maybe um, is yeah, is that guy who took the heat for all of it or took the <laughs> metal for all of it. Um, but I, uh, I agree with you. Um, I, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, but I don't know. Like, I feel like that auteur nature to Nolan's movies and that formula he's stuck by is one of the reasons uh, I guess I like him as a filmmaker. And we've talked about this earlier in the show where we both kind of soft and soft, 
got soft on Nolan? What am I trying to say? Gonna say already, to- like, yeah, yeah, we've soft, are, we softened on him as on, a director, as, as, a, yeah. as, as the savior of cinema. Because yeah, of China, and I think we were behavior. both we were both in the middle of that film bro era of love, love the Dark Knight. Nolan was the fucking guy. In film school, I he only had at that point up to the Dark Knight. Uh, his filmography wasn't even very large at that point. Um, and I convinced my the head of the film department to let me do my like basically my little thesis thing um on Nolan's filmography, even though he didn't have enough uh enough movies, right? Where everyone was picking Scorsese, Tarantino, you know, the classic film broy um kind of stuff. I went for the newer film broy <laughs> thing of, of <laughs> Nolan. Um have I frozen on your end? Or yes, no? you have. You have All frozen. Right. Great. You look, look great, though. I look great. Hopefully, I come back, and I don't know if it's still recording my video, but I'll keep going. Um, oh, now you're oh, back. There, I, there, I'm back. So I uh, I did my my filmography big giant essay on Nolan. So I was, you know, I was just like everyone, uh, 100% in. And then as I've gotten older and as his movies come out, I kind of softened on him a, a little bit, and especially with Tenant and the whole pandemic, which I'm repeating myself. But um, I don't know. Like, I, I get, I, I'm not as high on the movie as, as some people. I'm more, I'm closer to you than I am, you know, the people calling it a masterpiece. Um, I still really... Uh, I really do think the movie is quite good and it did kind of win me back a little bit. And I am someone who kind of likes uh, the formulaic nature of certain filmmakers. Like I, I, I not necessarily hundred percent bought into tour theories and, and, and things like that of, but I, I do like that. Like I am someone who likes a stamp on a movie, right? Like I like when someone goes, these are my movies. This is how I make them. And you're going to find that kind of stuff in all of my movies. Like when you immediately sit down to watch a Chris Nolan movie, like, you know, it's a Chris Nolan movie from, you know, how it's, uh, the, the, the setup of it, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the structure of it. Yeah. yeah. Nonlinear storytelling, even bringing back the memento, um, subjective objective thing, uh, actors he's used, like all those classic auteur things. Like, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of what won me back in this a little bit. It, it, so I kind of have an opposite feeling to you where, uh, I agree with you on the editing standpoint where there are certain sequences where it's just two characters talking and I'm like, can you just let it fucking sit on someone for a second? Like I get that you want this kinetic energy. And that's one thing I do love about Nolan movies as well is like he can make grass growing feel intense, right? Like or paint drying feel intense because there is this relentless like tick, 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 like crescendo operatic nature to his movies that are constantly building to to its finale that that is another thing that is formulaic in his movies where they always as they've gotten on have the even though he's brought in different cinematographers and different composers like uh, you know even bringing in Ludwig Göransson and and having Hoyt van Hoytema uh, uh, come in his last uh, group of movies like they still feel like his early stuff because you can very much tell that he is in total control of everything right for better and for worse but like um, for me it's just like overall like Tenet was such a convoluted fucking mess which is like something we've discussed that I'm fine with movies like Interstellar or 
other things where you've kind of the first time you watch them, you're like, oh, that was a lot. Like, I don't know if I I liked it, but I don't I might need to see it again. And then the more you watch it, the more you enjoy it. I don't think that means a movie should take six times before you actually grasp what it is and go, oh, now I get it. It's like, no, then <laughs> then like, no, sure. You're you just don't like it, which people. is OK, too. Yeah. Um, like maybe if I watch Tenant 10 times, maybe I'm going to finally understand what the hell it was. Right. But even the action in that movie and just the setup anyways, getting back to this, like I do think it is that greatest hits kind of Nolan movie, which is why I think people are calling it a masterpiece and why people are, um, kind of really in love with it. And and I think I'm closer, I'm close to that, but I'm closer to you where I I still think it, it, it is very good. And I like that. It's that greatest hits of going back to, you know, the structure of memento, but then taking in what uh, the time and, and, and different things of, of Dunkirk and then adding in, you know, some of the, the IMAX cinematography that he, he utilized in dark Knight and interstellar and, and, and things like that. And it's just like, it does feel like this pinnacle of everything he's been doing. Um, and then using actors that he's used for better, for worse in other movies. <laughs> um, and, and all of that stuff. So like, I, I really felt completely engrossed by it the entire time. And this is coming from someone who, you know, I know this is, he's an important figure, um, uh, Oppenheimer. I know the history of the Manhattan Project to an extent, Um, but I'm not a period piece guy. I'm not an, I I care nothing about American history at all. Um, So like those are two things that this movie had against it. And I felt the similar way of Dunkirk where war movies um, I enjoy more than just, you know, American history movies or anything like that. But like Dunkirk, a movie that I didn't care about the first time, but the more I watched it, the more I enjoyed it basically because of its structure and its relentless pacing and how it utilizes time. And you saw um, it at, at TIFF Cinesphere as well. That's when I started. Festival, I yeah. saw that movie two or three times in theaters and, and it got better each time. This movie, I, I, I did feel uh, engrossed and engaged the entire time. I think its structure does get in its way a little bit, um, both from just a being, this is just a Nolan problem sometimes of, of making something more convoluted than it actually is just because of his structure. Um, in, in like, I'm like, this should be easier to follow. And maybe if I was American and knew the history a little bit more, I'm just not a uh, American history person. I know this is a very important thing that happened and, and it is a, change the world because of what it created um i know the simplest amount of of history on it so like i should be able to follow it follow it pretty easily but like i found myself going there's so many fucking people in this movie oh that you said it perfectly like, where it's like if you're not a white guy in this movie middle-aged white guy fire your agent like really fire your agent if you were a middle-aged white dude in hollywood and you didn't get a call to be in this movie i'd be like what the fuck happened? Why didn't I get a call? I'm like, like literally the people in this movie, you're just like for one or two scenes is, is distracting, but almost becomes like, uh, it shouldn't be nothing in this movie should be comical, but like but it is comical it is, when you it, see Matthew Modine in like two scenes, oh yeah, I one kept, of which he says nothing. <laughs> yeah. Papa. <laughs> so like, I just, uh, Nevis and I, I kept leaning over to her and we were doing this like bit and I shouldn't have been doing a bit during this movie. And I think that's sort of telling at at moments of being like, like at any time a new cameo would pop in, we'd like lean over and like say a movie or show that they were in and it got dumber and dumber as it went along. Um, But 
I don't know. There was just something about it where I, I liked it more as it went along, just like you, where uh, I guess it's usually I'm with you where it's kind of the opposite in Nolan movies. But um, I felt like at the beginning, I'm like, holy fuck, there's a lot going on and it's jumping around so much. And but it's relentless pacing keeps you kind of fully engrossed in it. And I think the score is amazing. Um, the IMAX cinematography, which I talked about earlier, um, you know, that jumping back and forth, I think even hurt that editing even more, Eric, to, to your point. Like, I think yeah. you'd be even more distracted or more annoyed with it when it's cutting not only in a scene fucking it had i leaned over to nevis and it said it reminded me of bohemian rhapsody a little bit which is not a good compliment in the sense of like the most editing because it's just fucking it, it doesn't know how to sit on something and i think it's doing that intentionally because it wants that relentless pace because it is a lot of people talking in a courtroom or, or not a courtroom what is it um a, a, a uh, hearing a, it's it's a, a cabinet hearing, hearing. Yeah. yeah cabinet hearing as well as a boardroom as well as in you know a building and, and stuff like that like it's a lot of just men talking to each other so you have to kind of do that kind of stuff to keep people's like eyes open almost right and then and that's some of the problems um, where the nolanisms come in right like he yeah. can't you, in a three-hour movie you're gonna get it but he can't help himself sometimes yeah. and like those little and we should also quickly mention i really like um jennifer lame as an editor i think she's done some really good yeah. stuff she edited uh ari aster's hereditary uh speaking of noah bomback a uh, marriage story uh, so it's it's not like she's coming in and she you know she's she's serving the director's vision and she did that with tenet as well so it's it's nolan telling you know, like what he wants and she's doing it to the best of her abilities but if if i had only seen these movies i would be like oh man i really wish like lee smith would come back and and edit his films or things like that but she has done some excellent work in the past it's just nolan's style can be so abrasive at times with that kind of heightened hyperkinetic bombastic energy that it almost becomes parody onto itself. And that's where I have a problem with where, you know, he is a guy that I think is super talented, is an amazing technician, maybe not the greatest writer in the world. He's very similar to James Cameron in that way, but there is something about him that we were like, he, he is his own worst enemy. Sorry. To, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm with you on that. Um, but overall I found myself, I think it did help that um, I thought it got better as it went along. I think um, uh, that sequence of of the test um, is amazing. Uh, the Trinity test is amazing. Um, I think the last act, when it starts to get more into the repercussions of everything, I think is quite good. Um, so I think it kind of leaves you in a spot that's devastating and and... But weirdly, I felt more emotion in Barbie than I did during this movie. Like, I do feel like Nolan's like he's not great at invoking emotion. Um, and I do think in Interstellar, that's when he tried the hardest to do that. And, and you know, it works to varying degrees of success. But like, I didn't have that like um, existential, you know, crisis feeling like at the end of this movie, like I felt during Barbie at times, right. Or like uh, any emotion I felt during And I never thought I'd say that, but like people were talking about the movie being devastating. And at the end you have to recover from it. And it is a lot, it is heavy. It's a lot. And it's three hours. It's exhausting. Um, I, I just never felt that although I was fully engaged and interested and I, I thought it was, um, a really well-made movie. Um, uh, I just never felt that by the end of it. And then 
quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back over to you. But um, we made the joke about if you're a middle-aged white dude and and you weren't in this movie, um, fire your agent. But Nick I Cage think, at home? Why am I not in this yeah, movie? <laughs> I do think there are some great performances here, and I think we're on the same page Um on this, I think uh, David Crumholtz is, is is great in the movie. That's um, where the emotion is the closest thing yeah. to feeling something. The way that he and his relationship to Oppenheimer is actually closer to being a real brother or a family member than his own family. And the way yeah. that Crumholtz's character, you know, will offer him an orange and say, you need to eat, like, you know, and, and sits yeah. with him and is very kind. That's where I found there was a beacon of human emotion to care about somebody in that way. And he looks like Alfred Molina and it's hard. Not to I think- thought Wayne Knight at times too, like a younger Wayne Knight when, um, and Alfred Molina is a great pull as well. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple things and Macon Blair, I think is quite good as well. Also um, compassionate in the way that like he'll sit down next to Oppenheimer after that one moment where they realize like they're in a, an uphill battle and they're sitting in that kind of like chair that's off to the side or the background or that couch and he's just sitting next to him and he's like, yeah, I've never, I've never experienced this either. And he's not saying that, yeah. but he's just, he's conveying that. And it's, and it's also yeah, just and nice to see him not play a Make him Blair. I love, yeah, I know. I love it, man. Right when I saw him, I was like, make him Blair. Fuck yeah, dude. Like you're in an, uh, like front and center in a Nolan movie, like in a, in a big sequence. I was like, and again, who isn't in this movie, <laughs> but like, yeah. um, uh, I just love seeing Macon Blair, a guy that I, you know, discovered through Jeremy Saulnier and, and, and blue ruin. And I interviewed that guy back at TIFF in 20, making bacon, baby. He's and making yeah, that and, bacon. Uh, super nice guy. And like, he's great in blue ruin and all of Jeremy's stuff. So like, go check out, um, blue ruin. If you have a chance, cause like we well, even um, in green room, right? Like he's the green room. He's great too. But I just mean being the lead in blue ruin and he's so good. Um, I thought both of them were standouts of the, of the supporting cast. I mean, Downey Jr. I think is really, really good as well. Um, uh, the best I've seen him in a long time. I'm with you with Killian Murphy. I thought he carries the movie. Um, you know, he carries the movie, but like, I, I was never blown away with him, but maybe it felt effortless. Like he is a great actor and I'm glad to see him, um, again, front and center in a Nolan movie. Um, you know, uh, people were tweeting like, oh, I can't believe no one's uh, done this before and made him a lead. I'm like, has no one, Danny Boyle did this like 20 years ago, right? Yeah, with Sunshine uh, and 28 yeah. Days Later, right? Yeah, I'm like, you got Killian Murphy Bush at the beginning of 28 Days Later and then- uh, And Neil just, Jordan's Breakfast on Pluto. Um, like he's, yeah, he's yeah. been the lead, but I guess I maybe know. they're looking at it from the point of view- A big I, movie like this, I guess. Studio like, films, yeah. right? You know? uh, I will say I agree with you with Nolan still has a lot of work when it comes to uh, women in his film. <sighs> and just uh, f- uh, a woman's perspective in in anything of get and let get even though the not necessarily like you know he's sticking to you know he's a, a middle-aged white guy so he's making movies about middle-aged white guys and, finally and, those and guys for, get, yeah get, get there <laughs> but like so he keeps trying and i guess with this he's he you know i thought i guess Anne ha- the Anne hathaway stuff in interstellar and uh, sorry not just Anne hathaway and um jessica chastain um in in interstellar i think 
you know, is the closest he's gotten to. But Chastain's character was originally is, written as no, a man. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so I think here you have Florence Pugh is one of the best working actresses in Hollywood and she's doing her best with what she's given. It's just, she's not given much. Um, and then you have uh, Emily Blunt who is also uh, giving a performance that uh, I think at one moment is quite good. Um, and, and the rest of it is, is not so great. Um, not necessarily thinking it's her fault, but again, with what she's given, um, some bad and, drunk acting. Let's yeah. Just say that. I agree. And, it's hard. And Blunt to play is one drunk, of the best, yeah. like yeah. she's amazing. And it just feels like, yeah, the one scene that she kind of, where she hands Jason Clark, you know, his papers basically. And it's like, you are a piece of shit and I will, it's and great. I will, and I will take you on in, in your own arena is amazing. And it's like the rest of it. She's literally the suffering spouse and she's barely there, you know, yeah. it, it, and, and again, you can argue, well, okay, it is a first person narrative and, and Oppenheimer was so much more focused on, you know, his teachings and his work and that's how it, how it is. But then with the Florence Pugh thing, like this has been brought up a lot recently as well, that Pugh's character, the way that she's written in this story is very similar to the way that. Uh, Marion Cotillard's character is written in Inception, where you have yeah. a character who dies and becomes kind of um, a way to motivate the lead man to push through and continue on, yeah. or is a the laziest way to use as a, a guilt woman in, a, guilt. in, a, in yeah. a movie. Yeah, I agree. And um, so, yeah, it doesn't handle that stuff. Even the sex well. scene, the way that that, again, let's talk about that Oliver Stone kind of like showing a provocative moments or, image where you yeah. see them having sex on the chair in the, the board. I like that it's, moment, it's, but like, I think it's kind of silly. I understand that. Goofy. Um, I, I, I was, wanna... it was jarring, but yeah. I, I will say like, I do like some of those more surreal moments, although it, Again, going back to a greatest hits of Nolan, the scarecrow ass fucking jittery <laughs> thing in the background. I'm like, how do you not think of that watching yeah. this because of it's Killian Murphy? Yeah. Or even the sound of the train, right? Like that yeah. that that freight train that's about to like crash. That that sound uh, of it, but yeah, you, when when you're going through the cast, it is very distracting. Distracting. It's great to see that Nolan has his own Ken doll in the form of Kenneth Brana, even though Brana, I don't think is that great. In no movie. Michael Caine at all. Well, right? Mike, I think Mike. I I, I honestly think Tenet's his going to be his last movie, unless there's like a a a, a voice like in the way I thought. Dunkirk. Yeah, I thought there might have been something there, but I haven't heard but, anything. But someone like... did mention once, and, and I'm sorry that I, I can't remember who it was, but it was on Twitter that almost the way that that. Uh, John David Washington says goodbye to Michael Caine's character in the scene that he's yeah. in Tenet is Nolan saying goodbye to him and that this is going to be the last time you see him on screen together because you know Michael Caine's in his 90s now and 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 he Michael Caine's been very open about like his his um you know abilities as an actor yeah he, he's he's basically semi-retired at this point he can't walk as much as he used to and things like that um but but going back to like this cast you know like there are moments where, and this isn't going to be for everybody, obviously, like there's moments where you're watching um, the hearings and you see, you know, that group of, of, of people um, interrogating uh, Downey Jr.'s Lewis Strauss character. And you see someone like um, Harry Groner, um, who's probably best known to a lot of people for playing the e evil mayor in Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the third season. He was the big bad on that. He he, he was a big deal on that show. I, I don't doubt it. I just think that's such but, a funny but, pull. But, but the funny thing there is that he was also in A Cure for Wellness. He's the guy that um, 
Dane DeHaan is going to that is going to who's also looking like Tim Robbins in this movie um, who's who's going to that resort to find and so like you're thinking about that so you're you're being taken out of that Josh Hartnett's in this film Josh Hartnett who actually is very good in the movie I agree with that yeah there's there's the scene where they're all talking about what part of Japan they're going to bomb and uh, James Remar who's best known as Harry and, and Dexter nowadays but it's also a walter hill actor everyone is the one is the one that says your favorites all your your favorites are here is the one that says uh i don't want it to be uh uh kyoto because because i vacation vacation there but they mention the reason why they still want to bomb japan after the war is ending or germany is kind of um collapsing at this point is because of pearl harbor and Josh Hartnett being in Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, you're like, yeah. oh, that's kind of, you know, like it's nah. not, it's not his fault, but, but yeah. it is like, if you, if you have seen those movies, you kind of associate certain things and you're just like, oh, that for a moment there, it's like, and they cut to uh, uh, Hartnett when, when he's sitting there on the couch with, with, with Oppenheimer when they say Pearl Harbor. So it's, yeah, kinda like, I don't know. I just, I, never I think, really. I think that, I'm not saying that that's an alt, a, a negative per se. I'm just saying if you are aware of these things, they do kind of take you out a little bit more, but there are elements that I do like in the film. I I really think the way that Downey is portrayed here as a thin skin weasel, um, very sensitive is fantastic. And there are little moments where anytime someone pronounces his name wrong, which is, is something in the movie, they say Strauss instead of Strauss. There will be certain times where Nolan will cut to a close-up or a medium shot of him, especially during that Senate hearing or that cabinet hearing where he'll wince or yeah. like and, and that I think is really interesting. Or you mentioned, you know, him being uh the program director at the 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 Los Alamos um base for the Manhattan Project. Um, yeah. you know, there's a conversation earlier on about how, you know, people who are extremely smart or high functioning wouldn't necessarily be good in kind of um, menial jobs. And so like, there's a conversation where like, you know, Oppenheimer even admits, I think it was to Josh Hartnett as well, where he would never be good at running a burger stand or a burger place, Yeah, but he's running this, you know, multifaceted facility that is, you know, that, that has so much riding on it. So he can do that, but he can't do something that's very kind of simplistic. Yeah, in comparison, so those things I really enjoy. Which is quite true. A bit. I think if you took any CEO and told them to run a Starbucks, like I don't think you're gonna. Oh, they'd run it into the yeah. ground before the yeah. end of the day. Um, I I also think that like the sequence with Casey Affleck's character is really well done because the way it's like they talk about this guy who is an extremist and someone that shouldn't have power but does you know, sniffing out communists and Matt Damon's character saying, and Matt Damon's very good in this movie too. Um, uh, saying, yeah, there's a couple moments from him. You I shouldn't, you love, shouldn't know him. He should only know you. Like you shouldn't yeah. be in the same room with Casey Affleck's character. And I'm not advocating for Casey Affleck. Yeah. But, but, but I, his, I was going to, but his, but his, but his character I think is interesting in where that is kind of bringing up the communist aspect of the story where there are people like red blooded, true Americans that are in power that if they even suspect anything, you know, you, you will be in trouble. And if, even if you have somebody like 
a, a, a Groves on your side who isn't always on Oppenheimer's side. Like the whole story of him getting clearance is a, a whole other thing as well, which I think is really fascinating where it's like you're giving this guy a certain amount of access, yeah. but you're not giving him everything because of those political leanings or past associations with other people. Yeah. Um, there's there's another thing as well where there's a Nolanism that I find kind of interesting that's in Batman Begins and in this as well, where in Batman Begins, you have Rucker Howard's character taking over Wayne Enterprise and firing Lucius Fox in one moment. And he says, you know, didn't you get the memo? And then at the end of that movie, you have the reverse of that. In this, there I can't remember the line, but there's a thing between Strauss and his aide played by uh, Alden Ehrenreich. Where at the end, I liked of it, Alden Ehrenreich in this too. Yeah, he was good. He was good. Not but much a, to do, but no, 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 no. But nobody really has a whole lot to do outside of the this the the, the bigger players. But then uh, Ehrenreich at the end of it, when like you find out that he didn't get the the position, uh, Downey Jr.'s character didn't get the position, repeats the same line basically as like it's blowing up in your yeah. face now and and so yeah. there's a lot of those writing isms that are there and and i do kind of miss when jonathan was writing with christopher because even yeah. though jonathan's a more conventional sort of accessible using the word accessible yeah. here um you know i think they complemented each other pretty well um and 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 Nolan, the Nolans kind of worked well with the, both the cerebral and kind of the commercial and kind of combining those t- two things mm-hmm. where sometimes Nolan's own pretensions and, you know, his his habits for better or worse. You know, we've mentioned that a lot in this episode, the things that are for better or worse tend to really you're you're getting Nolan uncut here. You know, if you want a true christopher nolan movie you're getting it and i will take this any day over the week over something like the king's speech or any oh absolutely man that's why i think i'm i'm kind of just on the positive end of just like i appreciate he's doing his thing and i i do attribute it to maximalism in both of these movies to an extent even though it's like nolan is in a different category almost on his own and again for better or for worse but i will still take this and and again it might take a couple watches to kind of you know maybe appreciate it a little bit more or kind of like um understand exactly what he's doing with the objective subjective and the time the non-linear storytelling like i think that is one of the be- for worse of the better or for worse kind of things of like his movies do because of their structures. Like sometimes you just don't always grasp them completely on first watch, which I do think is a little bit of an issue, but then it does reward you for going back and and, and watching his movies um, again. So yeah, ultimately like I like the surreal stuff. Like I liked the kind of that's the, where the editing I, I did like of inserting the fucking like the like atoms and bombs and and things and like um when the hallucin not hallucinations with the visions and stuff like that like i liked some of that again for better or for worse some of it doesn't work some of it does so like um i just uh i i just appreciate him as a whole of like there's uh, any filmmaker that has their definitive like fucking like this is a movie from 
me, I, I just, I appreciate cause you're not going to get any, that anywhere else. You'll get people maybe trying to imitate certain, you know, there's going to be people who are influenced by Christopher Nolan now, right? Like he's been working long enough that we're going to start to see. And I think we already are seeing that. In, well, the in father, look at, look at the like, Anthony Hopkins movie, um, right? Yeah. Like, and, uh, I think even, um, Jordan Peele to an extent, like I think, uh, is in that camp of of Spielberg very much, but like even more on a more modern sense, like of of no, like Nope to me, uh, with the IMAX cinematography and 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 stuff like that did feel like uh, it was a little bit Christopher Nolan, and um, I just think though you're not going to get anyone who's making a movie exactly like this. Like no one's going to make an Oppenheimer movie that was exactly like this. And I do appreciate that. And I did think it was fully engaging and for a three hour movie, um, it's pacing is relentless and, and I think it, it gets better as it goes on. So I I'm teetering between two ratings here and I key, I've gone back and forth since I saw it because I loved Barbie so much. Uh, right now I'm going to give the movie a four. But I could go as high as a four and a half. Like I really do think it's quite good, and and I think that's just a testament to him as a filmmaker too. Like uh, uh, this has won me kind of back over. And but in my Nolan personal rankings, I still think I like Inception more. I like two out of the three Batman movies more. Um, I like uh, Dunkirk more. I like Interstellar more. So like. When people are saying this is his best film, like I, I don't see that. I just find those movies. Or when they're are, saying like his best film in a long time, Dunkirk was 2017. It wasn't that long ago. Got nominated for best picture and and, and was directing. Yeah. It was first. It was his first directing Oscar nomination. Yeah. So, anyways, I think it's quite good. I'm gonna land on a four now, but I think on rewatches it could go up to a four and a half. Yeah. I again mixed positive. There's there's a lot there to appreciate and contemplate. And even though it doesn't always work with the objective subjective narratives, I do appreciate that it's challenging for a mainstream release that he's doing something like that where most movies spoon feed you. Um, so I'll always take something that doesn't necessarily work or even does come off as as pretentious um, than something that just tells you exactly how to feel. But then there are moments where like even the Albert Einstein stuff, like right after that kangaroo court line and, the, and, and that guy gets in the car and drives away and then you see Albert Einstein walk towards uh, Oppenheimer, it almost weirdly feels unintentionally funny or like it's like a sitcom moment where it's like, oh, Einstein's coming over to visit. Um, but then I also kind of like the idea of even though again it doesn't always work where you're seeing the same scene play out but from either in color or in black and white and how the perspective changes or how scenes are interpreted uh, you know based on the person who you're seeing the point of view from and i think like even though it doesn't always work i think the idea of that is interesting um so you know like there's there's a lot there to appreciate even if it's not his best movie and even though this is a joke like it feels like dunkirk worked for him partly because it's sparsely written and there are no women and that's his greatest strengths as a director like he's he's a technician limit first. the dialogue and limit well he's a technician yeah. first and foremost he's oh, i not, agree he's yeah. not He's not a, an actor's director per se. He can hire great actors to be in, in great roles, but he's not a guy that's like 
focusing on performance first. He's focusing on the construction of yeah. a set piece or how something he's is a technical master. I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And, and those are, those are things to really appreciate. And I think there's a lot to appreciate there, but it's not his best work in my opinion. It's, 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 a, it's a good three and a half out of five that I think going down the line, if I rewatch it, I will appreciate it more, but for everything that I've seen of his, like I will take Dunkirk. I will take the dark Knight, I will take interstellar, you know, over, over, uh, even memento. Like I, I think oh, I those movies memento, are, yeah. are, are better films. Um, but there is a lot worth seeing here. And this is 10 times better than most blockbusters. Like I'll take this over Opp- uh, Oppenheimer. I'll take this over Indiana Jones. I'll take this over, yeah. uh, you, you know, uh, transformers, any, anything that we've well, seen. Course, in the, yeah. Anything we saw in June, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take that, you know, like at least I'm thinking about this movie, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. This was a, a blast to do. I think doing, both of these reviews together was something kind of unique as much like the experience this weekend has been uh, very unique and something that we haven't gotten in a long time. So uh, whether you stuck around for just Oppenheimer or watched Barbie as well in the whole two hour um, kind of podcast we just did, uh, we appreciate it. Let us know uh, in the comments or tweet at us uh, what you guys did first, which movie you liked more, if you liked both, if you liked one. Um, Very curious to see how people react to both of these films. Um, this was a blast. Eric, we'll be back soon with some reviews for things like, uh, Gran Turismo, Strays. What else do we got coming up? Uh, cause August is kind of quiet and, and with the strikes going on, the rest of the year might be. How very dare you, sir? Um, TMNT. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Mutant That's next week. Mayhem. Yeah. I, I always forget. I got a little, um, we had the, for our Barbenheimer double feature, we both got kids combos at the movies <laughs> and, uh, to watch Oppenheimer. So Nevis had the Barbie kids combo and I had the TMNT kids combo. Um, I really wish they did an Oppenheimer one. So you it's probably best they didn't just to be, Oh, that, that is one thing that um, we did. Did we, we talk about it where, Oh, I think we did where you never see, um, the Japanese perspective. I think we that didn't that's really, really mention that, but that yeah. is important because it's all from, again, first perspective. And I yeah. think it's more, you need to focus it on the American side of things because it's yeah. talking about how I agree. corrupt and awful nationalism is. Right. And that patriotic yeah. aspect of like, what isn't the, what is, the I don't know if Nolan had anything to add if to show any of that. Right. Like it's not yeah. necessarily his place on that, on that part of it i agree with that uh so anyways i had uh, and my little topper i got um weird going segue. from from, from uh, the i know i know that's why i said weird bad segue because uh, nevis got the barbie combo i got ninja turtles and i got Raphael, which i felt was very fitting because he's the darkest of the ninja turtles and it was a dark yeah. movie so. the dark night of the ninja um, turtles if you will um uh, anyways uh thank you everyone uh we really do appreciate it um as always my name is matt Rohrbeck or ken uh, and you can follow all, follow all of my work around the internet, uh, mostly at untitledmoviepodcast.com. And you can follow me on all of those social medias, including threads, which I don't really use that often. I'm still, I'm still. You got blue sky now too, man. Yeah, I know. I'm blue sky. I'm never going to go on blue sky. I'm going to be honest. Um, blue sky's dead on arrival. I'm just going to announce that here. Threads is hanging on by a thread, really. <laughs> like unless they fucking get a, a desktop website that i can go on and fix some of the other things like i i'm a twitter boy through and through and i'm not trying to support 
the person who owns Twitter. I've just got so much invested there that that's mostly where I do my posting. So uh, at Matt Rohrbeck for all that stuff. And I'm Eric Marchin. You can find more of my video reviews on rogerstv.com slash cinemascene and on the social medias at EM6211. And please, if 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 you have the time, write a review on on uh, Apple. Apple Podcast. Uh, I was going to say iTunes again. <laughs> I caught you. I caught you. And head over to Letterboxd, which is untitled underscore movies. Uh, until next time. I want to push you around because I will. I will. Because I, I will. Uh, I, I want to take you for granted. Life is plastic. It's fantastic. Bye, everyone.